What's happening, weirdos? This is the very, very funny, thoughtful, well-read, smart, interesting Alex Edelman, who, if you're listening to this the week it comes out, uh, starting on Monday, January 24th, Alex is doing his incredible uh, one-man show, which I watched him do a run of it at a comedy club. It's that funny. You can do it in a comedy club. We talk about that. So it's a one-person show that is as funny as a stand-up show, which is a huge compliment, but it has a lot of heart and a very good message as well. It's very, very thought-provoking, very, very interesting. It's called Just For Us. It's at the Cherry Lane Theater in New York City. For tickets, go to justforusshow.com and go check out the show that we discuss in this uh, in this wonderful chat that we had. If you'd like to come see me do stand-up, uh, the next and only date <laughs> that I have right now is at Largo here in Los Angeles, my favorite place on earth to perform my home, my happy spot. Uh, it's going to be on February 12th, which is a Saturday. We don't often do shows on uh, Saturdays, but this is a rare weekend show. So I hope that means that more of you uh, can make it out and it's easier for you to make an evening of it. Go to Largo-LA.com for tickets to that. Uh, we have some sponsors for those of you that are new to the show. I only promote things that I actually use and love, like Living Libations. Living Libations is an incredible, natural, easy to understand the ingredients, skin care, hair care, teeth care, everything on your body care company that I became uh, conscious of not that long ago, maybe five, six years ago. I realized I was very careful and mindful about what I was putting in my body, but not very careful about what I put, was putting on my body, which of course gets into your body. I was buying shaving creams and face washes that I thought were fancy and good because Frankly, they were expensive or they had French names or they were sold in kiosks and malls. But of course, these products are made by corporations that don't care about us, that are filled with chemicals linked to disease and just toxicity levels that were never intended for humans. So I came to the realization I want to eat food where I recognize the ingredients and I want my skincare to be the same and I want it to be incredible. And that is what Living Libations is. Ingredients you recognize, natural, real, and good, and completely, I'm going to use the term, it's badass. The stuff that they make is so effective, I'm going to call it badass. We start every morning. Uh, Leela goes to preschool. We slather her in their zinc-based sunscreen. As a parent, I find it so hard, or I found it so hard, to find a sunscreen that was actually natural and that actually worked. Living Libations has an incredible one that is easy to put on and keeps her protected all day with ingredients we can recognize. It's I haven't found another one like it. Only Living Libations makes it. I think it's awesome. Personally, my routine involves their ginger exfoliating scrub, which is made with plants and oils and extracts that I recognize as real and natural, but is also the best exfoliant I've ever used. I use that before I shave. When I shave, I use their Zen Shave, which is their balm that is so clean and natural and moisturizing, you can actually use a dab of it as aftershave. Try doing that with some anonymous neon blue goo shot from a pressurized can. I don't recommend it. Plus, their best skin ever moisturizer. Both Val and I use it at night. Smells great, feels great, gets uh, feeling great right before bed. But whatever your skin needs, this is a great way to support the show. I promise 
for your face, your body, your eyes, your teeth, even baby care. Living Libations has a premium, natural, and wonderful product to replace the random chemical nightmare that you may be using now. So show your support. Get something small. Get something big. Subscribe to something. Whatever you do, uh, it directly supports this show, and we appreciate it. Go to livinglibations.com, and uh, this is new. It's different promo codes. We're swapping it up. So for January, if you're listening to this the month it comes out, it's promo code WEIRD2020. 2022. Uh, that's 15% off your order. Or if you're listening to this in February, it's so close, I'll give you both. It's Weird Love is the promo code for February, depending on when you listen to this. Secondly, uh, I am currently wearing my perfect jeans. As you guys know, I hate a hard pant. I don't understand why we can't just give in, move into the 21st century, and start wearing comfortable soft pants that look good. But unfortunately, that was a really hard thing to do. Until recently, I tried to wear yoga pants in public. That, that wasn't great. Enter the perfect jean. Great look, perfect fit, and super soft and flexible fabric that looks so good no one needs to know. We are trapped. We are, sorry, we are trapping parts of our bodies and restricting them like they owe us money. I'm talking about ding-dongs, everybody. I'm talking ding-dongs. And these are the best pants I've ever owned, and it takes the pressure off that zone. <laughs> I'm going to call it a zone. I literally haven't taken them off since they arrived. I have them in black. I have them in dark blue. I love. I actually have them in two other uh, cuts as well. They have different cuts. They have different colors. They're 2% spandex, 2.5% rayon, just a little bit but it gives you a lot of extra comfort and movement that your man parts require. The jean stretches so your nuts ain't crushed, thereby providing the only true home for your bone. Super, super soft, super, super durable, and best of all, they're not khakis. Fuck your khakis and spare your nuts. The perfect jean for the perfectly imperfect men are just 60 bucks when you use code WEIRDO at checkout. It's literally a code. I have gone back to that site time and time again and ordered more cuts, more colors, using Weirdo myself to get more of these pants. So liberate your lower limbs with the one and only perfect gene, whether you're working with lemons or lentils, a three-leaf clover, or a big old honking eggplant. Always my favorite part of the copy. The perfect gene has you covered. Take a peek at theperfectgene.nyc. That's www.theperfectgene.nyc. Use code WEIRDO for 25% off at checkout and show your support of the show. Last but not least, the uh, the Pete's Pick that has absolutely been with me the longest and has been a daily part of my regimen. I had a little bit of weed last night and I was so foggy at work and I was just struggling and then I remembered, oh yeah, I have Alpha Brain. Alpha Brain is for, for real, for real, uh, the supplement that has changed my life the most. I love it. It supports your memory and your focus. I find it to be incredibly helpful for creativity, uh, for remembering lines, for hosting this podcast, for doing stand-up, for writing scripts, anything that you need to do. Somebody at work <laughs> that I am getting along with quite well just told me that he heard me talking about Alpha Brain. He is now on it. And he told me, I don't understand why everybody doesn't take it. And I was like, right if you're using your brain and you would like it to be easier to access the uh, information in your brain, the abilities of your brain, and I'm not talking about a stimulant, it's not caffeine, it doesn't get you, it doesn't elevate your heart rate, it's just earth-grown ingredients grown right here on the good old earth that help you focus and help you access your memory your recall, your language. It is incredibly helpful. I wish I knew about it in college. I'm so glad I know about it now. 
this podcast you're listening about to listen to, I definitely took two or three Alpha Brain uh, 15 minutes before we started. I have it in my car. I have it in my travel bag. I have it uh, right here on the desk. Obviously, I have another one in the house. I'm never far from my Alpha Brain. If you like it one-tenth as much as I like it, you are going to lose your, your, your marbles. Well, that's not good for a new atropic. Uh, you'll shit your pants. There you go. <laughs> it is truly wonderful. I highly, highly recommend it. Go to onnit, O-N-N-I-T dot com slash weird for 10% off and show your uh, support of this podcast. That's onnit.com slash weird. Get that in your brain. Get clear. Get creative. Get focused. And show your support of the show. All right, everybody, hope to see you on February 12th at Largo, and definitely go support and check out Alex Edelman uh, for his show, Just For Us, which is out this Monday in New York City. Stay safe, everybody. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. Get into it. I really like it. I really like it. I really, really like it. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm humming. <laughs> The Tim, really like I'm humming the Tim Minchin song about Christmas, and I can't remember what it's called. But there's Minchmas, a Minchmas, Minchmas, Merry Minchmas. It's about like it's about like summer in Australia because I guess Christmas is during their summer. It's so it's summer in Australia. And uh, yeah, you're <laughs> you right. Even, you don't even acknowledge it. By the way, yeah, if someone yeah. said there's no summer in Australia, I, and I've been to Australia in the summer, I would still be like, oh, oh yeah, no, of course. It would be like it's like it, it's like Israel, where I'd be like, wait, is there a dry season and a rainy season? <laughs> it's not a jungle. It's not a, it's not a jungle climate. But in Israel, it it kind of is. It's like a dry season and a rainy season. Like it's is never it really. It's never brutally cold when I, when I was living in Israel. It snowed, and I was like, "What's the big deal?" And people lost their minds. They were just like, "It's not supposed to." Snow. I'm like, "It's February," and everyone's like, "It never snow. It never snows. It shouldn't snow." My rabbi was like, "This is a sign from like the Rosh Hashiva, like the head of the seminary." Was like, "This is a sign from God," and I was like. It's, it's, it's the winter. Snow. It's yeah. the winter. Whatever no, message that, that God is sending with snow, it's being ignored in Utah. Yeah. Because <laughs> he keeps sending it. <laughs> Israel, Israel must be pretty on point because he only rarely has to send the snow message. Yeah. The message that he's sending is about the freezing point of water. If we're being honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's a yeah. dew point. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the book of dew point. Yeah, um, exactly. Thanks for doing this, Alex. I'm happy to see you. Dude, I can't tell you, you how excited and nervous. <laughs> Are you nervous? I'm not going to lie. I'm so... Because also, the, like, I've listened, honest, but... I've listened to the podcast. So, like, I'm oh. like, you know, like, James Martin and Richard Rohr have been on this podcast as oh. well as, like, all the comics that I love in like Tan France who like, and so like little things from the podcast have like stuck in my brain for a long time. And so I felt wow. like of all the people to pick, you pick the Catholics I mean, and, and the gay, uh, the gay fashionista. And <laughs> I mean, I love Tan France and I think he's, a, Oh, that, that episode, I, I think Tan France is incredible. 
uh, being a gay fashionista is, is like 0.01% of what his identity he's, oh, yeah. he's just an incredible firm and strong person. And he really uh, also is like, he knows who he is and what like self-preservation it means to him. Yeah. And like the whole episode without ever saying anything about self-preservation sounded, I don't know. I just, I, I listened to it. Well, I think I, I watched your one person show uh, just this afternoon. What? So Are I you did. serious? Yeah, but I didn't like it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. What a lunatic! <laughs> oh, like Pete, a, I would like go. A true lunatic. I didn't like it, but I do have to say I did see it. No, I loved it. It's wonderful. And I you get even more um, props. Do people say props? Props. I mean, Gallagher fine. says props. Yeah. Like, where are my props? <laughs> Um, Carrot Tops says props a lot. Um, if someone tells props. me they watch my one person show, Pete, I also do wonder where are my props. That is my, uh, that's my like, give you some props. Give me my, give me I'm my, giving you props. well, you're getting extra props because you did it. Um, <laughs> you, I just laughed because I thought of corn props, Kellogg's corn props. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta have my props. The least you, like, you, you buy it and it just, and it just like a ear of corn with an actual ear comes out and you're just like, what is it's Kellogg's corn props. Let's uh... <laughs> Oh, it's a prop. It's an actual... I was thinking of it in the terms of like, I don't know what you would call that. The slang, I guess of like, I, you need to give me my props, my respect. <laughs> and then doing a commercial where somebody like, torches the car of his enemy someone who disrespected him and it ends with him watching the flames and he's nodding slowly and the voiceover comes in gotta have my props <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did it to get his props he's gotta have his props uh, it's, uh, this is, we're already off to a great start so sorry, please sorry, don't sorry, be nervous sorry. what do you mean sorry I mean it so sincerely that was so sincere what part of you thought that no, was no, no I just, I mean, please continue because I'm also like dead curious how you felt about it. Because what you're, about you know, Tom Franz? Tom Franz? Oh, the show. The show. I'm going <laughs> to tell you how I feel about Tan France, not not your show. Uh, no, I'll tell you. All, I'll tell you what the props was because you did it in uh, at a wonderful comedy club, but you still did it in a comedy club. The, and the, yeah, it's a yeah, solo a show, but it's one. it's developed in comedy clubs. And like this is such a thing that's been said, I'm sure on your podcast, but on every comedy podcast. But after a while, the distinctions kind of stopped mattering between like spaces like black box theater or comedy club. I was like, you should be able to do a solo show in a comedy club and you should be able to do a comedy club set in a theater, you should be able to make those things. By the way, I say that I've moved to the cherry lane where the show is, you know, running. The, the show is going to be, was running for a couple of weeks and then took an Omicron nap and will be running again. And I have had to adjust to the space for maybe the first time in my entire like comedy career in like Why? a very because significant it's way. so pretty and nice. <laughs> it, it is very pretty and nice. And also theater, People who are dedicated New York City theater goers oftentimes walk into a place completely not knowing what they're seeing. Yeah, I know. I hear you. And so I have had to what has appreciably helped the show is me coming out on stage going, hi, my name's Alex Edelman. I'm a comedian. And and then I just go into the show. Uh, yeah, yeah. But once I, the second night I started doing that, I. About three nights in, I started saying, hi, I'm Alex Edelman, I'm a comedian. And I, I, I came out and I went, hi, I'm Alex Edelman, I'm a comedian. And someone in the second row went, 
Oh, like, like yeah. audibly, like, yeah. I wondered what I was going to see this thing that I did zero yeah. research for. Yeah. They just like the theater. They just like theater and they like that theater. Like yes. they like Cherry Lane specifically. It's but I gorgeous. think the words Mike Birbiglia presents on the poster should clue them in. A thousand percent. A thousand. Right. But, but you yeah. know, Mike is such a maverick in, 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 in his, his, in his, in his, in his, in his quiet way, in his quiet way, it would, if you were like, I'm just kidding, Mikey, I know he's going to listen to this and you didn't respond to me saying in his mind, no, Mike's yeah, a maverick in his, in his mind. I mean, he thinks he, yeah. he doesn't, Mike's, think he is. Mike's a maverick in that he loves Dallas basketball, you know, that's like right. that's what I, yeah, that's the riff area for me. Yes. I know what the mavericks are. <laughs> keep going, keep going. But Mike, you know, it wouldn't be beyond if Mike like saw, an animated short that he liked, I could believe that Mike would be like, I'll produce this. You know, like he is a totally, but you're right. It is, it is sort of, it's in the ballpark to continue our sports metaphors, but different sports. It is in the ballpark of Mike Birbiglia a little bit, right? Like it's a little bit. Oh, it certainly is. And Chris Gethard. And I haven't seen Jacqueline Novak's show, uh, but I, it's all sort of in, it's in that confessional space, but I actually, this is going to sound strange. I think you did give the comedy club on state audience something that I think it was risky. I'm trying to compliment it, you. I'm not trying to say, yes, it does work, but it's a risk. You're not just, you're not just, you're not going for that uh, rolling nonstop kill thing. You're going for the one man show thing, which is like in, uh, to Mike's career way more impactful if you can make them care about you and make them like think about something that's that's interesting and and thoughtful and real it's better than mike and i talk about this all the time it's like you can slaughter and mike can slaughter and you can slaughter for you know just hard joke hard joke hard joke just going nuts 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 but that's not what you're doing and i know you're a people pleaser you talk about it in the show I think you deserve uh, props and kudos, both the granola bar and Kellogg's corn props. That's for doing that. It's not easy. I don't. I think you're underselling it. I mean, I think that it's 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 weird though because I have a director who's the his name is Adam Brace. He's the in-house director at the Soho Theater in London, and which is a great theater, and he sometimes has to tear me away from jokes because my comedy upbringing was in Boston area comedy clubs. And like, I, and Mike is always trying to center the story because he's, you know, he realizes that's what an audience inherently wants. And I'm always trying to reach for like, whatever punchline will get me more laughs, whatever taglines will get. And so like, I actually have these, these guys who have healthy impulses and not that Mike and Adam don't also suggest great areas for comedy or encourage like new jokes, but like comedy is so tangential, right? Your segues are 10, even the best comedian segues are a little bit tenuous and they go from, you know, from place to place. But Mike and Adam have made me like focus on this thing. And sometimes they made me throw away a joke or something. And it just kills me. Cause as a comic, I'm like, but it gets laughs. It gets good laughs. Well, what's a joke that they cut from this show? You know, I had a long story about, um, or I had a joke about, uh, I don't know if it's in the version that you heard, but I cut it at the first night at cherry lane. It's about how, um, how I think sometimes people of my political persuasion, like liberals are always congratulating themselves for, for being okay with certain things they should be okay with. So there's a joke about me going into a frozen yogurt store in Brooklyn 
and seeing a sign that says we serve people of all races, religions, creeds and ethnicities. And basically the premise is like, oh, as opposed to all those other racist frozen yogurt stores that I've been going into for years and someone complimented the sign and it's an anecdote, but someone complimented the sign and I go up to the front and I really wanted to say to him, oh, would you like me to congratulate you for being cool with the law? That's the law. And like, it's a joke that people laugh at and agree with, and it always gets an applause break and it always, you know, like, and it has a bunch of jokes in a, in a row. And like, it's got a little simile, like many stand-up comedy jokes, a little bit simile schooly. And like the, the joke works. It's a really good joke, but it's just, there's no real estate in the show for it. Like it breaks the flow up of the, by the way, I realized that I was like, this joke kills. And then I just summarize it in an extremely like pedestrian way. But like the joke, the joke does well, but it wasn't meriting the loss of momentum from the central story that it was, you know, coming right, in at. Right. Right. Well, that's, I mean, Mike and I, I would watch an early version of his show and we would always, then I'd go and see it again. And I'm the guy that's like, what happened to, there'd be a bit. <laughs> Mike has cut half an hour from, Mike has not cut. He like, I'm the, you know, I can't pass the buck here. Mike has encouraged me to focus on story in a real way. And he and Seth Barish, his director, who did a session with me, a very important session where like, just so you know, like the show has a lot of laughs, but it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not centered around a, it's not centered around the central story yet. Like, and they, encouraged me to cut parts that Adam, my director, had been encouraging me to I had a long seven minute anecdote about meeting Prince William uh in the U in, in the UK when I was working over there. And they were like, great story doesn't doesn't work for the show. And like it's so painful to lose jokes because like mm. I don't have that much, you know. I it's not always in my, you know It's interesting. Again, sorry to keep mentioning this, but this Please. is Mike and I's conversation we talk about this all the time is like i every time i've done an hour i'm just trying to have it be really 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 funny and he and i think he's right he thinks there's more longevity if you can make it like a movie and a movie like everything you're saying reminds me of what you would say about a movie it's like why do we have this scene like you see a movie that just has a funny scene but it has nothing to do with fucking anything yeah you have to cut it but comedians don't do that to themselves. So it's really nice. And I think it hel- it is going to help the show. And it probably even helped the version of the show that I saw. He's, that, that you cut those things. You, but you're so right. And also, here's the thing that Mike... <laughs> by the way, Mike Birbiglia is truly... And I'll go... Like, this isn't me going out on a limb or, like, because he's my producer. He's truly, like acknowledged as the American master of this form of doing shows with heft and hours that mean something. And he takes it a little bit for granted because not everyone is Mike Birbiglia, but like Pete, you're Pete Holmes. You're gonna be funny. And like, you're gonna, and by the way, it doesn't always necessitate cutting a joke. Sometimes it's just spending a lot more time or a little more time, but in a succinct way, contextualizing the joke that you're doing and telling the audience why it belongs a little more. But like you could start with the cliche. Everyone says like, you could read the phone book and it'd be funny. Like not right away, but you're a comic. You'd make the phone, you make the white pages funny. 
Yeah. After a while, like it it's would. A funny name for your show, the White Pages. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would kind of fit. It centers around uh, white supremacy and, and some really interesting stuff, and a very good story. And I, I'm not hiding it. I, I thought it was a wonderful show. I think you should be proud, and Thanks especially so proud that you did it at a comic club and that it works so well. So yeah. why don't we give the, the the people the the like I'm Alex Edelman and I'm a comedian thing, and I'd love to. One of the things I, I texted Mike, I was like, what should I ask Alex about? And the thing that really stood out to me was that you didn't feel uh, like a, like super welcome. Like they didn't roll out the red carpet for you at the clubs in the States. So you went abroad. I'd love to you, know. Take me through that. Go ahead. So you know what's so interesting is thinking. Thinking about the Tan France episode. I promise this is answering your question. You tell the Prince William story for yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Huh. So there I was. So the red carpet. Speaking of red carpets, I was at the bathroom. I'm actually going to write down Prince William. I want you to tell that story. I at some point, <laughs> but but I was. Uh, Tam France talked about. You asked him why he was good on camera. I'm gonna I'm gonna misremember this because a while ago. Yeah. But like. And full disclosure, like I've I've worked with Tan a little bit. I think he's, I know him a little but And so he's telling the truth when he said this. You're like, how come you're so good on camera? And he's like, because I never had to take an acting, because I never took an acting class or I never had any sort of like thing that I needed to unlearn. Like with all due respect to the comedy scene that we both maybe grew up in a little bit in Boston, like I had to unlearn a lot of bad comedy. And then like New York in the, I went to college at NYU and I started like hanging out at comedy clubs. So like I had to unlearn the bad comedy I was seeing at like some of the more problematic comedy clubs. Like I was like, Oh, this is what a comedian is. And then I didn't feel welcome there because it was never really who I was because I was like, I don't want to be doing like faux edgy material and i also I know what you mean but i can't talk yeah. about that enough sorry to, i just want to no, slow go ahead please, please down is i just remember especially being at, at the cellar and i'm not pooing the cellar but it was the cellar 20 years ago sure you know what i mean and i'd be it'd be like the 2 a.m show and you just go down you might see great comics but they'd be doing they'd be unloading their unconscious in this really strange way and i probably like it sounds like you're saying i was like that's just not me. Like, I, I don't want to be like, I don't know, bad example would be like dead baby jokes or whatever sure. it might be. Like, I just was like, I don't understand that. There was a, there was a, they were, they were more piratey than I was. <laughs> That's exactly how, like, by the way, Dave Attell is a fantastic generational talent, like singular comedian. Dave Attell imitators are very bad. Like, and it felt like there was a time period where there were lots of Dave Attell imitators. And I was yeah. like, if I want to work these clubs, do I have to be a David Tell imitator? Do I have to like, and then I started seeing comedy. You you won't remember this in a million years, but I walked into housing works and you were hosting the housing works show at that point. And I was like, Oh, this is, I've talked about this on other podcasts before, like mm. the housing work show. Also, what was the show in Brooklyn where there was a fluffy thing hanging from the ceiling? Oh Yeah. Joe uh, Mandy. Big terrific. Yes, big, big terrific. terrific. And yeah. like some of the like I still East... remember my riffs about that big puffy thing. I said oh, it looked I... like the dog on the cover of Odelay. <laughs> I had so many, I had so many riffs good... about <laughs> I mean, I knew my audience. I'm like, I'm gonna do a back <laughs> reference right off the bat. They're gonna love it. 
<laughs> That's yeah. literally, but that perfectly sums like I had, you, you know, just, you just made me a little sad because I, I remembering big terrific. Cause uh, I, sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead, please. I just, I, I, you mentioned something that really just like opened my heart up that time of my comedy life. That was one of the best times of my comedy life was I, I had just gotten to the place where you could like headline or whatever, or, or at least be regularly booked at big terrific and man, if that wasn't like a light, lightning in a bottle and like, it was everything everybody says that's good about that, that scene at that time is it wasn't about, nobody was there to like showcase for some TV producers. You were just ripping ass. I say ripping ass to not mean fart. <laughs> just like <laughs> killing it. Breaking wind. Breaking the, yeah. wind, just like flapping cheeks <laughs> in front of all. And there's nothing, there was nothing better for me than being, Kind of like a corny, never really felt super accepted by the clubs. And then going up in front of these like incredibly discerning young, now they would be considered like tastemakers. Back then it was before like, I feel like Comic-Con had figured out like, you want to appeal yes. to these people. but And we were appealing to them. Like I could appeal to them with my stupid, stupid shit. And suddenly the coolest people, they were like 10 years younger than me. I could make them laugh. It was one of the yes. fucking coolest feelings in the world i'm just relating to you so keep going. no but you're but what i'm saying is like paul provenza says that there are two you know he's there's a book where paul provenza interviews Stuart lee it's really good and um i can't remember the name unhelpfully but like he Stuart lee and paul provenza sort of come up with this binary for comedy as a combination of content and aesthetic and the aesthetic of comedy clubs, which was hard joke, hard joke, hard joke, was really appealing to me, but the content was loathsome. And so I saw like content in housing works and big terrific that I really, really enjoyed in an aesthetic that was sort of closer to where I was. And then I went overseas. And also I, I fell in love with the idea of doing lots of time. Like I didn't like that clubs were seven minute sets if you were new and trying to yeah. break through. Cause I was like, I'm good or i'm getting there but it's not going to be undeniable until i can you, get on stage I, for a minute i need to interject again because i feel very strongly about this and i think you're going to agree with what i'm about to say the, the when you're starting out they make it the hardest for you it's it's like learning to ski on the black diamonds like it That's makes right. no sense and also but this i knew you would know that everybody knows that you have to MC or you have to do seven minutes or you have to do five minutes it also favors comedians that do short jokes that do that can do like 50 jokes in five minutes but are those the comedians that we see like ruling the scene like the like the sort of agreed upon like biggest killers in the world no all those guys to talk in your european scenes i always think of eddie izzard or Izzard. like how the fuck is this guy gonna do seven minutes how how the fuck is anybody that we love gonna do seven i i even watch it doesn't matter who it is. I don't want to see Brian Regan do seven minutes. Yes. And Brian, my favorite comedian minutes. when I started. Do seven minutes, Brian. I, he could do it. But here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying I'm uh, Brian Regan. I'm saying I would struggle very hard doing seven minutes after the MC and before the middle. I'd have a very hard time with that. Closing? I have to open and close in seven minutes? I can't do it. I say hello I and then goodbye. And like, yeah, by the yeah. way all the great comedy memories I have, none of them are seven minutes. Like, uh, you know, I used to, 
I used to see you every Thanksgiving at the Paradise, yeah, which was right. cool for me because I started going around the time I was able to get into the Paradise because the Paradise is very strict, like twenty one plus policy it's a for a while. By the way, it's a rock, it's a rock and roll club, and yeah. so to see comedy in a rock and roll club where I went to see like Guster in Letters to Cleo, yeah, well. like that was really. But those were long shows. Like, I wanted to see long-form stand-up, and I also thought, like, I'm writing longer-form stand-up. And so then I went to the U.K. I did my last semester of NYU abroad, and I started seeing these solo shows, and I was like, oh, I can do this. And also, like, the cliche of having something to say. But, like, you know, I saw you doing a bit about, like, at Supernova, the show in L.A., you were doing a bit about... um like it's a, a bit that had some heft behind it about like how we're basically on a rock floating through space. Something, something in the, something that wasn't uh, that had that had real like meat on its bones, mm. and it's hard to be like. Uh, so here's a little joke about me and what I look like, and then here's yeah. a joke about whether or not I believe we're alone in the universe. Like that's yeah, not forget exactly. It. Forget it. Yeah, you need to build that trust, and also what I've noticed over the course of the show. My solo show, uh, the one that I'm doing at the moment is I put the more ponderous material towards the end after you've established a natural rapport with the audience and a trust with the audience. And it's really it's nearly impossible to build that trust in seven minutes or three minutes into a seven minute set. And even if you can, that's not real trust. This so is, this is a big thing. I don't know if you've heard me say one of my favorite books is called The Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television. And he yeah. makes this really interesting point about the medium is the message. I know everybody knows the medium is the message, but he, he breaks it down and he goes like driving in a car is a medium and it's a medium through which you observe reality. Uh, and you now see trees, for example, on a street at car speed. And it used to be you might be on bicycle speed. And that means you'd see more of the tree. You know what I mean? And then behind that is walking speed. You, you see how like walking, yeah. you have a different relationship with reality than you do in a car. It's not to say cars are evil, but it's saying like, and this, of course, I, I don't have to say this. Anybody can figure this out on their own. That's my main problem with Instagram is that it's telling you that that reality is these little bites of some fucking asshole's day on a yacht. Like sure. that is, I, I, you mentioned Richard Rohr earlier. That's lying. That is a lie about the fundamental nature of reality. And Richard Rohr says, that's what evil is. He says a good definition for evil is something that lies about the fundamental nature of reality. It's and I was like, like that's fucking it. And I was like, that's what social media is. And we all use it to lie to each other. I've gotten off subject here. No. I'm going to give it back to you. No. Seven minutes is the medium. What can I say in seven minutes? You're limiting me by saying seven minutes. And you go to Edinburgh, you go wherever you go, and you go, we'll give you an hour. Now you're out of the car, you're on your feet. You're it walking. changed my life also. The available. By the way, there was massive. Um, I didn't feel welcome, super welcome in the clubs. I didn't feel super welcome in sort of New York's alternative scene because it wasn't very good. And it was a really hard. There were a couple of guys who believed in me hardcore from the beginning. Like Gary Goldman has been uh-huh. like a Best. booster of mine since I was 17 years old. Like when I went to visit NYU, he had seen me at an open mic in Boston. He let me sleep on his couch. Wow. Like I, I like visited colleges and st- And so I had this incredible privilege where Goldman was bringing me to places where I wasn't good enough to, to do it. And he was like, trust me, I, I'll, I'll valid. Like he'll validate this at some point. Yeah. And 
I, I don't know. I got very lucky also in the UK. Like Josie Long took an interest in me, who's a great British comic who does solo shows. Um, and I was starting to develop as a bad club comedian. Like I had sort of figured out seven minute sets. I had my like solid 15. Josie had a night called Lost Treasures of the Black Heart at a rock club in North London. And the idea is you'd show up and talk about um, a lost historical figure or a personal hero. And I went and I got asked to do the night and I did my club set and I did and the audience really enjoyed it. And I came off stage and Josie kind of sat me down and she's like, just so you know, you're not like she basically was like, you're not a great comedian. And like these jokes aren't Jesus, very, Josie. I, I know. And by the way, she's like the softest, gentlest human being on the, uh, like in com- definitely in comedy. She has like a very, she said it in a very nice way and she didn't, she wasn't even like you're bad, but she was like, if you want to come back next month and do a set that's sort of in the spirit of the night, you don't need to like kill. You can just go out there and take a, so I, ha- I started finding places uh. to fail. And once I found places to fail without fear of judgment, like in the UK, they have a system for solo shows called preview nights where every bar in a neighborhood, this isn't, that's not even too much hyperbole. Like pretty much every bar in London will have a preview system where people, comedians come before Edinburgh. So this is like June, July, and they do their hour and audiences expect to see a work in progress. Like I did a show once with another comic, a really good comic, but he was doing a show that was too polished and the audience stopped enjoying it because wow. like because they were like, this is done. Like you're not the comic before him had been reading off notes and napkins and trying things. And so like the hunger for a work in progress is w- was real there. So the fact mm. that I was a work in progress meant something. They yeah, they wanted that. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I, I also believe now that a competent comedian can and should be able to do well in almost any space in almost any country. Um and uh, provided they, you know, provided they're a, a, a professional. Uh, and I've seen, and so like, that's a bit of an old school view that actually, I don't even know if I believe that. They should be able to do it well everywhere. I think there's something to be said for it. Like I don't, I take no pride and sometimes comics will describe pridefully a time that they bombed in front of an audience. They didn't deem worthy, like a corporate gig or something like that. And I'm like, you took the money to give these people a good time. You should be able to thread the needle of giving them a good time without compromising something integral. You, you and I are, are, are similar. I, that's why I don't, I'd like to be able to lean into the punk rock and be like, fuck them. But like when you've done comedy for a long time, you know, there's some combination to the safe. Like there was some way, <laughs> like you mentioned Robin Williams a bunch in your set mm-hmm. or twice. And I loved Robin too. And it's just sort of like, you know, really the issue for me, if I do badly at a corporate was because their stiffness compromised me. Like it, it like got oxygen in the mother dough. Exactly. And I couldn't make it rise. And that's the issue. And you want to, I, I want to be at a place I feel like my job is to get into that place where I am funny you know what I'm saying? And when I am funny, I can make it funny. I can make even the fact that you're having a corporate show and you ask this guy to come and I just told that joke and it's not what you expected and you're all dressed way nicer than me or whatever it be. Just being funny and, and that's threading the needle. Yes. But I, 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 I do tend to agree with you. 
Um, and you will catch me after bad shows sometimes being like, yeah, these people are idiots. There <laughs> are, take, by the way, take it as a badge of honor. By the way, that's also true. Like yeah, you, can, can both you, be true. you can have some, if you tell a joke, sometimes some people are like, what happens if you bomb? And I'm like, if I tell a joke that I've done 131 times and the 132nd time it doesn't work, I can't be like, that's a bad joke. Cause you're not good at math. Like the, the, the. The math wasn't right. Maybe you, maybe the oxygen got in the mother dough and it didn't rise. But like, in the mother dough, I like that. (laughs) The oxygen got in the mother dough and it didn't. But like, yeah. Also, I did as you know. I met my girlfriend, uh, my current girlfriend, my lovely uh, girlfriend. I did a Comedy Central featuring taping at the Satellite, and she was there, and she's another comic, and she saw me, and I was more high energy than I than I usually would be because it was 11 o'clock and the audience had been there since 615 and like I know they did a seven and a nine that started late and I was like second to last but I was like if I am high energy if I like pull it out of these people if I literally say like you guys are gonna love this like if I scream at them a little more than I usually would like I'll get more juice out of the the orange but like I don't know. Like, I also think sometimes it's, you have to adjust your expectations. Like sometimes you, you're at a corporate gig and you do a joke that usually gets an applause break and they laugh a little. You're like, I'm killing right now. You know, like you have to, you have to totally. Uh, That's true. Yeah, that's right. That's funny. In that situation, I I feel like you're still in the, in that, like, it's funny, your enthusiasm. Like if I was going to talk about you and my experience with you has always been your, your big. Like you have a lot of energy coming off of you as a person. So it doesn't I, surprise, it doesn't surprise me that you're like, I'm going for it. I, I don't, I, I sometimes find value in going the other way. You're second yes. to last and you're like, I'm actually going to, I don't know what, I'm just going to do it for me. But you know what, man, there's no, there's no win. If you're second to last on an 11 o'clock show, there's no hard win. Sure. But, but I, but I mean, like I, my girlfriend now I came off stage and the set had gone well. And she went, boy, you're like the Macklemore of comedy, which is how we met. She was like, you're like the, and I was like, ah, you know, and I shrugged it off. Cause I had done all right. She was like, you're so high energy up there. You have the energy of like a white rapper. And I was like, okay. I mean, my first thought was like this girl had a friend who didn't do very well tonight on stage, which, which turned out to be true. But like, yeah, sometimes I do a set or by the way, like if everyone else had been, everyone else was very cool and laid back because it was a satellite and they didn't want to try too hard in front of Silver yeah, Lake people. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I have to zag here. Like if well, everyone I was, think I, yeah. not, you don't need my validation, but I think no, you need no, 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 my I know. choice. But like, here you are in Madison doing your one man show and there you are at the satellite going like, I'm going to go for it. You do seem that's it. And Gary, this is what Gary noticed about you. It's what I've noticed about you. It's like, you're not embarrassed by trying to get laughs. I truly believe <laughs> that like the biggest comedy influences on me are like guys like Gary. There's a guy named Kevin Knox who, who was a I Boston comic. Kevin Knox. Yeah. yeah. He passed, didn't he? He, he passed he away from cancer. The, um, open mic. He hosted the open mic Yeah, the comedy connection. And yeah. he gave it his all, but also there's, I truly belong as a writer and I realize everyone who's going to roll their eyes in two seconds, but I truly belong to the school of thought. That's like a bit like David Foster Wallacey, which is that like, it, there's no, 
there's no inherent cringe and earnestness. Like there's other, there's no inherent cringe in trying. Like David Foster Wallace was part of this counter movement to Brett Easton Ellis, who was like, nothing matters. And I was like, and I think it's okay to be like, everything matters. You don't have to be treacly about it. You don't have to be maudlin about like, about like stuff, but like trying it, it's very okay to try and it's very okay to care. And I have never been a comic who's like, I don't care. I care a lot. And like, also I love this job. Like I get regularly get to perform on shows or do the podcasts of comics that like Bruce Springsteen doesn't fucking drop into your local like music open mic. If you're, if you're a musician, you're like, Hey, I want to try six songs. They're like, that doesn't have like comedy is an incredible, I got to meet Robin Williams and like I idolized, I've met Mel Brooks. Like, like that stuff to me is yeah. Like, and to pretend I don't care would be, would be a fucking lie. Like, I love every, you know, day, there are days I don't feel like performing. Uh, everyone, everyone said this, I'm sure. Every comic has said this, but I really, I really like doing this. And I, and there was a long time where I didn't feel welcome and where I didn't have the opportunity to. And now I do have the opportunity to. And so I'm, I'm going to like, you know, be excited because anything else is like, just I I now I'm embarrassed of this actually. Ironically Why? now I am. Why? It's a little. It's a little. Uh, I love it. I was going to add to it. I was like the challenge of me uh, when you're me. I, I guess I've been doing stand up. I don't know twenty something, twenty yeah. something years. And there's the first ten years where you're really struggling, and mm-hmm. then there's the second ten years if you're lucky, uh, and and work hard. I guess I'll add that for my ego and work hard and work and hard and good. Work hard. Uh, the second 10 years, but then it, it, there's a, a danger in coasting. And like when I, when I interview people, if I were to interview Robin Williams um, before he passed, I would be like, why do you keep doing it? Like, and how, and how do you keep doing it? And one of my answers for myself is I can't, I can't disappoint the first 10 year guy. Yeah. <laughs> he, yeah. Did, he got kicked in the balls so many times and if he knew that I, you or I could be performing and we're not, um, he'd be mad at me. That being said, I'm not, I am certainly not living the lifestyle that he thought a established comedian would be living. Like sure. If, he, if I was like, yeah, I perform uh, maybe once or twice a week, it'd be like, what? Like, he'd be pissed at me. But I'd be a, like, you have a lot to learn about, like, balance. A That's thousand, what I would say to him. A thousand percent. And also... I just feel like there are some, you know, by the way, in terms of what works for an art, like John Baldessari, the conceptual artist said that there are three things that every, like that three things that every like fledgling artist must know, which is talent is cheap. You have to be possessed that you, you have to be possessed, which you can't will. And you have to be in the right place at the right time. And, and by the way, if you haven't seen, if you don't know who John Baldessari is and you're listening to this, there is a, um, eight minute short documentary called uh, just like uh, eight minutes on John Baldessari and it's narrated by Tom Waits. And it's one of the funniest like non comedy things I've ever seen. Like it's very good. And Oh yeah. It's, it's spectacular. I'll send it to you. uh, Yeah. uh, yeah, Send it to me. That's perfect. It's really, it's really, really good. And it's, and also he tried really hard. John Baldessari is the kind of guy that um, 
He's the godfather of conceptual art, and he in the 1960s he cremated or early 70s he he burned everything he ever made up until that point, and he uh, wrote a on a sheet of paper until the tape that was filming it ran out. He wrote, "I will not make any more boring art. I will not make any more boring art," which is like really pretentious and boring, but like it. it I, I really believe it's not, though. that's that's badass to me. I think that's he's great. such a badass. I this just think, yeah, I, I'm I'm interested in this. The, on one hand, we have the people pleasy Alex Edelman, which mm-hmm. I thought was interesting. And I want to talk more about and, and and you want people to like you. And I have that as I have that. I'm going to say that issue <laughs> that you also have. Yeah, I also yeah. have that. Um, but yet you don't mind. Not at the cost of your earnestness. Is that right? I also think that like emotion, being a liked person, and this is a bit of a curse, you know, you realize that being liked doesn't necessarily mean walking into a room and handing everybody $20 emotionally and be like, they like me. So like, like who I am is an earnest guy. And also, by the way, I'm like a bit of a snob and I can be a bit of like, a downer and I can be a bit cynical about like one thing or another. Like there are things I fucking hate. Like, have you seen on Instagram that guy who makes the quotes, but they're made out of Mylar balloons against like an Instagram friendly color wall. Like it's so awful. And the quotes are always like, be good to yourself. Like I have a deep and abiding mistrust of like, yes, I don't know. God, Alex, this is, it's if my wife heard you, because people think that you would, she would think we you, we were related or something. Because like, I get really excited about a lot of things, but living with Val has helped. Like she she gets to see every side of me. I try to show every side of me on this podcast as well. I try not to. Sometimes stand up can be a little more tap dancing, more polish. But the podcast gets some of the bad moods, some of the I fucking hate that mylar balloon sure, guy sure, or whatever. Sure. But like yesterday I had, I had neck pain because I did something, I was holding my daughter and I did a move that I knew I shouldn't have done. And I was in pain. And if you put me in pain, like if you make me like physically uncomfortable, <laughs> fuck everybody. <laughs> fuck. And it's very funny. It's like one of the funniest peeps, but he hates everybody and, and wants to tell you why everybody sucks. Yeah. <laughs> like, so I, I, I'm, I feel akin to you in this moment. So you hate that. Well, I hate that, and I don't want to be like, but I also, like, I I hate people who are like, it's okay not to try. And I'm like, it's not okay. Anything that makes us okay with being... Which is funny, because that's a thing for your age group. I really hate it. Like, that's re- what me and Mike and all these guys are going like, what the fuck is with these people who, are, who think it's uncool to try? Tell me what you think. Go. No, but like, by the way, it's a pendulum. It's totally a pendulum. Like the the set, the 50s were over earnest. The 60s and early 70s were nihilist. The late 70s were too earnest. The 80s and 90s were like American psycho, Brady Sinellis. And then there's the David Foster Wallace postmodernist. And now we've swung back to this. This pendulum of earnestness and wow. irony goes back and forth. And like, wow. I, I really think it's like a generational thing where like, I give zero fucks or something like that is a way because the, the way I feel about it is everyone cares all the time. Like there's no such thing as not caring. Like if you truly didn't care, you'd, you know, you'd die. Yeah. You'd die. You'd decompose. You'd, yes. You'd just give up. Yeah. You can't. And so like the celebration of not trying anything that does that makes me feel really uncomfortable, which isn't to say that I'm like in on it, like an 80 hour work week workaholic type thing. But like I am in on it. Like I love 
anything that's ambitious, anything like I truly have a I have a bit in that Comedy Central set about how much I love Coldplay. And I'm aware that you um, that you're I'm aware that he's been on the podcast and I listen to it. And it's yeah. like it's so cool Actually, for me. I like your mic is is wobbling. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, okay. Is this better? I don't know. I, maybe it was because you were moving too much. I just don't want to ruin the. This I was great t- moment. I was touching it. Sorry. Oh, it's okay. Is Katie the engineer? By the way, Katie. Yeah, she, she was thinking the same thing. I'm okay. Sure. Sorry. Sorry, Katie. Is this a little better? <laughs> yeah, it's good. Okay, good. Sorry, I was touching the mic. She I got overexcited. Yes. She said yes. Thanks, Katie. Um, and and by the way, don't be afraid of hurting my feelings if I'm doing something wrong. Technically, you can. Oh, you know I, I chimed in right away. You know, but when so, Has- Hasan Minaj did the podcast, he kept hitting the table. Yes. He didn't say anything. I, was oh, I don't know why I was scared of breaking his momentum or something, but that podcast sounds like uh, the show Stomp. Yeah. <laughs> but like I went, so there's a big chunk in my, uh, in, in that Comedy Central set about the uncool, like I love Coldplay and like mm. there's a, and and the jokes are basically like uh, there are a couple of jokes, but but one of them is like, and I don't like it when people are like, oh yeah, the early stuff is good, and I'm like, no, all of it. <laughs> like there's a, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was like, I was in a car with my friend Brandon, and Coldplay came on, and he was like, you know, ugh, Coldplay, and I and I said, uh, and I recount this in the joke. I go, oh yeah, I hate music that makes you feel like you can do anything. <laughs> 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 dare they try to bring light and love into my life i mean it's it's really like um and it is one of those things where like by the way i don't love all coldplay music but i love the ambition of like bo burnham's special this past year yeah. it really it's like you gotta love a Dave Kingman. You gotta love a baseball player that swings from the heels every single time, and <laughs> and like that is a very. It's funny. Know. I thought of Bo earlier because Bo is one of those people that is around your age. I think I don't know how old. Yeah, he's a two years younger than me, or a year younger than me. So he's around your age, and he's around the age of a lot of the people that we might blow the whistle and say, "Why aren't they being more earnest?" I love what you said about irony, the, the, the seasons of irony. And that's one of my favorite David Foster Wallace. Uh, it's on YouTube. David Foster Wallace on irony is like yeah. one of the best things that I've ever heard. And it does just sort of snap you out of it like a spell. Where you're like, what am I doing? Here, I'm going to give it to you. I remember somebody said this to me, and I also love Coldplay. And I listened to Coldplay. And I was in New York. So this is around the big, terrific time. And somebody said to me, they were like, Coldplay is like, uh, hey, is Radiohead too complicated for you? <laughs> that's a good joke. It's a good I, joke. It's yeah. a good joke. Yeah. And I remember in that moment, that's when you start to get the message from culture, not from your own taste, but from culture that you're not supposed to like Radiohead if you're cool. I mean, uh, Coldplay, if you're cool, you're supposed to like Radiohead. And I <laughs> think I took that note. I started, I was like, oh yeah, In Rainbows. In Rainbows did come out around that time and, and that is a fantastic record. Anyway, same thing with fucking Dave Matthews. I've tried to do it on stage. See, because I'm older than you, my yes. cold play was Dave Matthews and everybody loved Dave Matthews. I mean, Dave Matthews, it was a riot. If, if you wanted to sell 100,000 tickets, you brought Dave Matthews in. Yes. And then 
I'm fascinated with when and why we all, we all like a switch decided to stop liking Dave Matthews. Cause there's a lot of people like you who love Coldplay, but don't talk about it. And like me that still listen to busted stuff and aren't talking about it. There is a, you know, I spent a little bit of time this past year opening for Beck and he's Odelay. yeah Odelay. <laughs> and he plays a really wonderful balance of the hits that you will know and yeah. esoteric songs that he loves but the what it is is there is a the, the reason i like coldplay is because i like the relationship you say like the medium is the message yeah like i i like a medium that respects its that respects the weight that it carries and tries to reward. Like David Foster Wallace said something really interesting, just because we're on the subject. He says something I really You can't quote him enough. I love everything he said was fascinating. He said that thing about advertising. He goes, advertising, it's very hard. I think he said it's impossible. I don't know that it's impossible, but I agree that it's hard for um, advertising to be art because it's never intended as a gift. Oh, wow. And That's like, brilliant. It's always got an agenda. And so, and the you agenda say the same about us, though. That's what's that's what's haunting about that. But you and have you to sort be of very touch careful. on that in your show. Is like, am I giving you a gift? And that's the best shows of my life. I'm going give them a gift. You were given talent and a certain skill and a brain. Give them that gift, as opposed to can I make these people love me? That's those are the bad shows. The good shows are gift shows. The bad shows are the ones where you you leaned into your megalomania. And it's really difficult. And also, by the way, there is a, I think it's really a a mature thing to do as a comic is to resist trying to make your show all things to all men, um, but still trying, like, it's very hard for me, actually, to do a show that has a a lot of, by the way, if you're listening and you haven't, uh, and you haven't, you don't know what it's about, uh, which is, which is fine. Uh, the show that I'm doing is I went to this, uh, meeting of, of people that I would term to be white nationalists, uh, in Long Island city in Queens. And I sat there for an hour and I listened to them. And then eventually someone's like, sorry, but like, this guy's clearly a Jew. And I was like, yeah, I'm a Jew. And then there's like a short conversation, like, and basically, which is very reductive, but like, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, this guy's a Jew. This guy's a Jew. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a, a weird moment. I'm that's sorry, but this guy's. A, I'm just summing it up. And by the way, that's yes, the elevator. That's I the hope show. that I hope that you'll give the elevator picture of the show when you intro when you intro me. But because like sure. I, I, it's also by the way like I'm very proud of it. It's it's it totally re revived my love for uh, comedy after a year writing on a multicam that was not uh, that was not super uh, wonderful um, in, in, in even though there were wonderful parts of that experience and it has been a calling card for me and it's about my Judaism which is really important to me and it's about and it's nominally speaks to anti-Semitism in America which is something that I think about a lot but it's really hard not to just have a part of the show or make all of the show me ranting to an audience about anti-Semitism because if I really wanted to, what I really want to do is to go up there and be like, it fucking, part of my language, but like it fucking sucks. The Jews can't, you know, pray in peace and like also like, and it would be really sanctimonious and heavy handed and like, it's, it's hard to not do that and finding a balance between what is a gift for the audience and what is a gift for yourself. And let's be real, 
it's not always the same thing. Some people are like, well, if you're truly true to yourself, then an audience will totally connect with. That's not always, that's not completely true. You have to find a balance. And so like no. finding that balance, really difficult for a, I, uh, you know. I'm not trying to make fun of it. I'm saying it's like veganism and I'm a, ter- a terrible vegan. I'm like 80% sure. vegan, <laughs> 20% pescatarian. <laughs> but the, the, the vegan, 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 vegans I know, I mean, they have a similar thing where they're like, yeah, I don't want to just bum you out. It's like, I've said this a million times on this podcast, but Camille said to me, he goes, vegans are annoying because they're right. Um, people that are speaking out against anti-Semitism are absolutely right. I saw that statistic that it's like Jewish people make up like, I'm going to make up. Yeah. 58% of hate. 58% of of hate crimes, right? Yeah. And 2% of the population and 58% of the population and 58% of the hate crimes. And I was like, like, forgive me, but I was like, like you represent all of Judaism, but I'm just like, I'll, I'll communicate. Me. Yeah, please I'll pass communicate on. back. Point at it with the golden finger. <laughs> I am sorry. <laughs> but, but, but like for real, I, I in that moment, I I noticed a latent and unconscious belief that uh, Jewish people were just louder about it. You have to forgive that. Sure. No. Of course. Absolutely. It's an ugly belief, but I was like, oh, it's just because they, you know, they. I know so many of them or sure. so many of them are entertainers or whatever it might be. Or we live in a, we live in, you, you exist in New York, Los Angeles and urban yeah. centers, which are, yeah. which are, which are where most Jews are localized. So you probably more, know more Jews than the average Honestly, American. It's the same with vegans. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like if Absolutely. you live in New York or LA, you probably know more Jews and more vegans. And therefore you might think, uh, you might hear of those issues more often, but it the- turns out nationwide, that's that's what's happening. There is so a that's hard for you to ignore. But you know the the balance between those two things, or at least the struggle between those two things, basically, Pete, you're speaking about the difference between what is right and what is effective, right? For vegans, they're trying to communicate what they absolutely believe is right in a way that they think is. I have this barber in in uh, Brooklyn, and like many barbers, I have no that I have been to in my own personal experience. Um, he is very hilarious and uh, outspoken and says uh, two things to me every time I go that I was like, that would uh, end your career completely if you were a, if, you know, if you were a comedian in my position. And wait. he he also likes. What does he say? Well, he says things like. <laughs> You're not going to say. Yeah, well, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> okay. And so he loves. Uh, I have a deal with him when I sit down with him. I go. uh and I have my own feelings about Joe Rogan, but every time I sit down in the chair, I go, no Rogan, no Peterson, no Rogan, no Peterson. And he's like, wow. okay, no Rogan, no Peterson. And he said to me, and he caught me in a trap because he went, uh, we both love Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry to me is like one of the great, a, a great intellect, a towering intellect. And he went, you I have to like watch. We're going to need the Alex Edelman like liner notes for this episode. Yeah, I'm so you're, sorry. You're sitting... No, no, not sorry. I'm like, everything you're quoting is so fascinating. And I'm like, what am I doing? I got to read a book that's not about spirituality. So once in a while. here's the 30 second version of who Stephen Fry is. Go Stephen ahead. Fry was in a sketch group in college called the Cambridge Footlights. And they're sort of like the Harvard Lampoon. Or if you go to a college and you have a sketch group, these guys are them, but they're on steroids. Like this mm. group, some of the greatest comedy talents in the history of, you know, England have come out of the Cambridge Footlights, a big part of Monty Python. Every British thing that you love has had some, has been touched in some way by the Footlights. But in 1982, the Cambridge Footlights won the the first award for comedy in Edinburgh, the Perrier Award. Uh, it's the first time it had ever been awarded in 1982. And the people in that sketch group were a guy named Penny Dwyer and then Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie and Emma Thompson. So three of the four people are huge 
huge stars. And Fry and Hugh Laurie, the guy from House, did a show together called A Bit of Fry and Laurie that made them household names. And then their paths kind of diverged. Hugh Laurie became a American success story with House and some other great stuff. And Stephen Fry literally became sort of England's national treasure. Like, he came out as gay, and it literally changed how people in the UK felt about gay people. He's like, their Ellen, if their Ellen was also, like, the smartest person on the planet. Like, mm. and he's written books on poetry and translated Greek myths from the original Greek, and he's also, like, when he comes to America, he is a guest star on American sitcoms. So he's a comedian, but he's also kind of, um, <laughs> he's also kind of Aristotle. So, like... <laughs> what fun! Yeah, Aristotle came to mind. That's brilliant. And, and so he did this, sorry, back to my barber, he did this yeah. debate. Stephen Fry did a debate with Jordan Peterson and uh oh I think I watched this yeah and I said hey uh and he said hey I have to break our rule once and I went no Rogan no Peterson no Rogan no Peterson and he went it's Stephen Fry related and I, I was like okay and he's like uh it's Stephen Fry and Jordan Peterson in a debate and I was like oh I'd see Stephen Fry debate Jordan Peterson and he went oh no they're on the same side of the debate and the debate is about political correctness and Stephen Fry is like a, a gay activist who has been on the right side of so many different causes and cases, but Fry um, was debating against political correctness, and he said, "Here's my biggest problem with political correctness." He goes, "I don't believe that it works." He goes, "Because I think one of the greatest human failings is to per- prefer to be right than to be effective." And he goes, uh, and by the way, then they then there's a three-hour debate that has very little to do with the actual concept of political correctness. They just sort of argue various identity things, and it gets boring. But, like, Stephen Fry is right. He's like, we – sorry, that was such a long walk for such a small drink of water. But like, Are you Steve, crazy? Get out like, of that. Get out of that mud. You're, okay. you're in the clear meadows. Okay. But, Stephen <laughs> – but, like, I really think that there is a problem where people would rather be right – than be effective. And like yesterday, there was, sorry, hit my mic again. Yesterday, there was this attack on, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to pull up my, uh, I'm going to pull up my Instagram DMs really quickly because there was this attack in Texas yesterday when we're recording this and I got, and I tweeted about it and I got, as always happens, I got some anti-Semitic messages and one guy just wrote, um, you know, uh, this is a hot opening and pardon the language, but he just went, uh, kike. And I wrote, and I accepted the DM request and I went, I mean, that's not going to hurt my feelings the way you think it might. And he wrote, right. I'm sorry. Honestly, that was uncalled for, but was that not a Zionist synagogue? And I said, I, I mean, I can understand criticizing Israel or disagreeing with its actions, but the reason it means so much to certain Jews is because of something like this. And I have no idea, by the way, but the vast, vast majority of synagogues are not inherently Zionist or non-Zionist. They're comprised of people who have different opinions. And even if they're wildly pro-Israel, there's still no excuse. And he wrote back to me, after some thinking on this, you're right. I swear I'm not hateful, just angry. I read the guy's story and it seems Zionist to me, which is, I don't really, I never said that. I had never said that word before. I guess violence or threats against some random people. Like, he apologized. And wow. Like, I'm, which I'm is pretty floored that that's, that's how that went. Yeah, Vanishingly rare. But I do think that there is this toxic binary that everyone's buying into right now. Yes. And I think I don't want to be. The, that's the fundamental lie of the nature of reality is that yeah. it's binary. Is that if I disagree with you and it seems Zionist, I'm going to yell a slur at you. Everything Even said I haven't used this word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've it's, lost all subtlety, but our reality is becoming 
this is this is David Foster Wallace up its up its own butthole right here. Yeah, I mean it's like circling up and coming back up my own butthole and out my mouth. Like it's yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. Burroughs, David Foster Wallace. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is that like we were like these things? I'm going to include pornography, social media, uh, media, all of this, everything with technology is your life it becomes your life it becomes like i forget who says a man is what he thinks about uh, day in and day out and when you think in i I don't know that quote like i love that it's yeah i think it's one of the it's like one of the transcendentalists it's like an old old new england quote a man what is what he thinks about day in day out that's beautiful that's beautiful something like that so we're 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 being given binary like you you mentioned that brilliant thing the algorithm the guys the boys in danvers made yeah yeah they made the the meaningful content algorithm that by the way i picked uh one company that had worked on it and made them the father of the algorithms for the for the show but in the show i talk about this algorithm that's deciding to show you more of your own echo chamber and i try to do it quick because it's a bit of a like well-trod territory but you know i do it long do it long it's yeah i'm just like the i tell the room full i tell the audience and in the show the room full of uh of white nationalists and queens in long island city i tell them that they're you know one of them complained that it's hard to reach people on social media and they blame the companies for it they they believe they're being shadow banned but in reality it is really hard for and a, a small tiny joke in the show that i don't even pause for is it's very hard for new ideas now and then i look around the room and i go or in some cases the oldest ideas in the world like it's very hard for new ideas to reach <laughs> new people because of the echo chambers that we're in and and by the way like it, it's it's hard because pete like we kind of want this right like all the algorithms are doing is giving us is giving us what we want but like you know you, you said something about about cars and how we experience a car like my dad um, my dad's a very smart guy he's a scientist he's a cardiologist his name's Elazar Edelman he's got you know his own he's got a prodigious list of things and on a Wikipedia page and he's very thoughtful and smart and and an orthodox Jew who wears a yarmulke every day of his life and he interned in college for this guy Amar Bose who was an MIT graduate and who hired some MIT kids to work on his speaker systems. He, he was running Bose and he did, and he really, he hated the way that people were experiencing things in cars. So he sort of changed the way that we experience audio by changing, by trying to make the speakers in cars more like little tiny concert halls because concert halls were designed acoustically to make the experience better. And and so he tried to do that too, which is why actually song, you're not imagining things. Music sounds so much better in your car because you are experiencing direct sound. There's very little ricochet. So your your car now is engineered the same way that Lincoln Center is. Like it's actually kind of gorgeous and it's because of Bose. And if you ever see a Bose speaker on a desk, it has that curve. Right. Like some Bose speakers have a curve in the middle and it's because they want you to experience it. And so, like, people didn't know they wanted that. Like people sometimes people don't know what they want unless I just wrote down one versus me. We want an echo chamber. Yeah. But we also know that there's nothing uglier. Uh, That's that's an overstatement. But we know that a, a flowing river 
that's in relationship to its environment and is adapting and changing and always moving is so much clearer and more beautiful than a stagnant pond that you don't want to swim in. You hide a body in it. We know this in our animal intelligence. Like we know it because we're members of this reality and we see how energy relates to itself in this universe and yet we we allow ourselves and i'm including myself in this we allow ourselves to turn sexuality into pornography turn friendship into facebook and turn you know interaction into tumblr or whatever yes the fuck. yes but that's part but by the way part of that is the breakdown of all good faith and the breakdown of conversation yeah, yeah, this is this is because people think they want to be seen. People want to be seen. Right. So that's why they exist in an echo chamber, because you exist in a community of people who you think um, and not always correctly, by the way, sometimes you're wrong about this, because no matter what group you're in, you are you know subject to purity testing over and over again to delineate mm-hmm. smaller and smaller groups. But um, people, need, people need people c- need connection. And so because of that, they go to an echo chamber. But real connection is in conversation and conversation sometimes entails disagreement. Like I was raised as a Talmud kid. Like I was raised in a in a, a little bit of a midrash. Yes, exactly. Richard Rohr loves a midrash. I know that. Yes, but like but like I think there is something about. Uh, like Talmud is all about discourse and argument and affirming your ideas through argument. Like I have argued about, like if I go in, there are rooms I go into where I'm the most pro-Israel person and there are rooms I go into where I'm the most pro-Palestinian person. And so because of that, I know where my views are. And like, that's how I know where, like I was raised in an area, I was raised in a family where we would scream at each other. And then my dad would go, okay, five minutes, five more minutes. And we'd argue for five more minutes. And then he'd be like, all right, good job. Good job. This is what I think. This is what, you know, this is what I think your brother got right. This is what I think you got right. And like, you guys should sort of, and we would shake hands. And then this is always Friday night dinner. Like we would have these arguments over Friday night dinner. And so like this discourse was how I nailed down my like liberalism. This is how I sort of figured out where my political views were. So it's a really hard and by the way, I'm wrong sometimes too. So I've well, gone back up. Things- point isn't it? I mean, don't you want your skirt? <laughs> why am I saying your skirt blown up? But I mean, to be exposed. I'm saying like, don't you want? If you have something that you're trying to that you don't know how you feel about it, you want it exposed. You want the robe to open. <laughs> and I, like, let's let the light in all of this and talk about it. NYU was NYU was like that also. Like I I heard a lot of arguments about you know. Um, democratic socialism and trans rights being human rights before they were like in the zeitgeist because I was in an environment of people who are now, you know, like NYU was great for that because New York city at the time Occupy wall street. And, you know, there were, there were some really cool, interesting, uh, like folks that, that helped me like, you know, figure out uh where i was coming from that was wrong and like it was i i I can't get enough of argument i really love argument i try not to engage with it outside of my family or my best best friends because not everybody as i have learned is very excited to argue but like it it is something i think that's incredibly worthwhile and uh it also speaks to i think it sharpens intelligence and i think it also sharpens humor yeah i mean like the amount of Midrash, obviously, just being my layman's definition, it's almost like a 
overly exhaustive exploration of every possible way something could be interpreted. That's like, that's a good definition for comedy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we were watching, uh, I, because I had neck pain last night, I don't normally, um, I don't need to give this disclaimer, but I don't normally t- take weed, but I was in hmm. pain and I ate some weed and I was having it's because it's been months and months and months since I'd had it, just the perfect weed experience where like everything, I could see the problem with everything. I'll give you an example and tell me if this isn't just a little bit like a funny argument. We're watching Ghostbusters Afterlife, whatever the fuck. The sure, sure, is. sure. They're chasing a ghost, Alex. They're chasing a disembodied transparent specter in a car. And the ghost is running and has a good lead and the Ecto one is following it. The ghost, why is the ghost going on the road? Yeah. It's going on the road towards a bridge. You want to lose these motherfuckers? Take a hard left into the woods. Yes, absolutely. Or go up. I mean, we were laughing really hard. It's really funny. That to me is like, like an argument. I'm arguing. This is stupid. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but also you're watching Ghostbusters Afterlife. Like you that's are right. that's the other side of the argument. Like, what do you want? Like, I have a real problem now with zombie movies because I was like, we already did that. I'm like, it was already we already <laughs> litigated that if this happened, this is what would happen. And yes. so for now yes. to to be be like, actually, it's a different kind of zombie. It's not something that is it was the cure for cancer and I am legend, but this time yes. it's the flu vaccine. Like it's an insane yes. it's an insane thing that's like George Romero's IP. So I don't even know how it's legal, but like <laughs> The idea of like zombie, like I cannot do, I can't do zombies anymore. Even though I like really enjoy every t- every cup co- every so a couple of years, I dip into a piece of like Colson Whitehead's book. Zone One is like a really fun zombie novel. Like the guy who wrote Underground Railroad also wrote like a truly great like zombie thriller. And like Emily Saint, I don't, I don't know. There, are, there, are, there are a couple good zombie things, but like I can't do zombies. I can't do end of the worlds anymore. Like, it feels yeah. like a really weird way to, like, artificially inflate tension. That said, I did enjoy it. Don't look it up. But, like, end of, <laughs> like, I always have to get over the weird humps now whenever, like, and that scares me. Because, like, that is cynicism creeping into my life. Like, I am more cynical now than I was. Well, that I'm more cynical to, now. You're, you're the, what did you say? It's, like, the irony up uptick is like there's no trust like there's yeah and this, this is a big Richard Rohr thing is there's no communal center and there's no trustworthy voice um and Richard would be the first to say he, he acknowledges that the Catholic Church has proven itself to millions to be untrustworthy and loathsome uh so he's not saying he's not speaking as an institution he's speaking as a thinker people, um but don't you we find don't that, have anything solid don't you think that the people's debt like Trump's Trump rallies are like they speak to people's desperate need for community, even if it's in community and like the worst thing mm-hmm. or some of the worst things that you could possibly have. And you're also, like, you're also going, I've made this point many times, but I'd love to hear what you think. If you can't find the part of you that likes Trump, I don't think you've met your wounded child, your scared child. Trump is my dad can beat up your dad for president. And by the way, it looks like he can beat up Joe Biden. You know what I mean? Like he's the, he's the dad. He's that kind of, I don't know how else to explain it, but he's the like, stick with me, kid. I'll keep you safe 
scary dad president. Like tr- liberal, like we're not Jewish, but we love a Shabbat. Like that's yeah. Joe Biden. He's like, come over. We'll have some hot. Like he's so threatening. Like that doesn't look like their dad. I'm not trying to other them. No. I'm saying I have a feeling because my dad looks more like Trump than Joe Biden. I'm not putting down my dad. I'm saying if I want to get into the part of me that can sympathize and empathize and build a bridge to Trump supporters, it's when I go like, yeah, don't you remember when your dad was like, blowing through a toll in the Winnebago. <laughs> like, yeah, I, yeah, I remember that felt awesome. <laughs> By the way, like the part of the part of me that like, I could see someone criticizing me by going like, oh, so you care more about civil discourse than the issues? Like, or like in saying that you favor a dialogue even with reprehensible people. I'm like, all these reprehensible he- people, what they have in common is there's very little dialogue between them and us. And like, I... There is a dad element to it because I volunteered for Joe Biden. I fundraised for Joe Biden. And the thing that, like, I I always was going to vote for, they could have ran, ran a baked potato against against Trump and I would have, like, voted. For, I'd be like, oh, it's a loaded baked potato, guys. Come on. But, like, <laughs> it's loaded. It's, it's got sour cream. It's got something, you know. It's a really good baked potato. It's loaded. They could have literally they would have had to run like the ghost of of a Confederate Civil War general to, you know, like to make me consider voting for Trump. But when they released the Hunter Biden Facebook messages to his dad and I saw Joe Biden doing his best to be a doing his imperfect but earnest and authentic and loving best to be a good dad, I was like this guy because Trump is. 900 percent naked self-interest and as a as a physical threat to minorities and other things he is unacceptable and as an existential threat he's unacceptable but i was relieved to find out that i wasn't interested in naked nationalistic self-interest because the stuff that trump was talking about that appealed to certain people is like oh i don't want that like i don't want a u.s that doesn't care that doesn't embody any of the values that i love in this for the sake of you know a couple hundred or thousand more dollars in tax but like it doesn't do anything for me but like yeah when you when you vote for a president you pick a dad right like you pick a you pick a dad you should you should pick you should also pick a pick a mom that's a much bigger that's that that's a much bigger issue america I mean, Val and I talk about this all the time. We're like, we need you to drive as often as I drive. Cause I mean, that's where it starts. Yeah. Like you, if you want the, a mom to drive the country, you should see the mom driving the car. Yeah. <laughs> you it's, know what I mean? It, that Hillary losing was truly shocking to me and made me rethink. Uh, I didn't think Hillary was going to lose. I underestimated how sexist certain things are. And I underestimated, by the way, I think Democrats underestimated the, the desperation and anger of many factions uh, in this country uh, as well. But like, I don't know, this is uh, like, it's all stuff I'm sure you've covered a a million times, but yeah, Trump's, uh, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm so overclamped talking, uh, talking about (laughs) this. And I can go for (laughs) overclamped, which I love. Yeah. Um, Well, let's get to God. I mean, we, we only have, we have roughly 40 minutes left and I don't know if we're going to cover it all. Sure. You were raised Orthodox. um, Yeah. uh, I was raised Orthodox, modern Orthodox, modern Orthodox, let's which is not black coat, Poland, uh, living with a string around your neighborhood. Uh, but it is yarmulkes. 
Is there a yes. string around your neighborhood? There is a there there. I grew up with a with an Arab. Sure, I grew up with a string <laughs> around my neighborhood. Um, okay. okay. I by the way, here's how I would define to you uh, modern orthodoxy. One of my comedy heroes growing up and still is Elon Gold, which is yes. Yes. which is so he is so funny to me, and he is a. F- hilarious guy and i, I mean, love that love shul runnings when you said shul running i mean i died elon I was like you just you just said shul runnings in madison wisconsin oh and my it god it worked, it okay. worked. <laughs> but it's like by the way pete quick sidebar my brother aj i mentioned this in the, i mentioned this in the uh in the show and uh that my brother aj made the olympics in 2018 for israel in a sport called skeleton he switched over to bobsled uh, last year and this morning in uh saint moritz in switzerland it looks like he did well enough to make the olympic we'll know this week but like i think he's gonna be at the olympics in beijing in 2022 again in a separate sport in bobsled so like truly Whoa. shul runnings i know it's wow. crazy shul running shul runnings but like elon uh i i was raised uh as part of the sect of Jew, it, usually I just say I was Orthodox Jewish, but like someone as like circumspect as, you know, as you are like yeah, one of the reasons, frankly, I started listening and enjoying the podcast uh, was like in modern orthodoxy, you try to sort of center, you try to sort of live in modern life without compromising uh, Torah values. And so those are, uh, and the head of this uh this is really for the liner notes. The head of this sect of Judaism is called uh, this guy, Joseph Soloveitchik. And he argued uh, that being religious is actually an intensely lonely experience. Like if you have this experience, like having an experience with your creator is a really lonely and difficult experience. And he writes about the two types of Adam because uh, there are two accounts of creation in Genesis 1. And he wrote a book called Lonely Man of Faith, which is considered like Time magazine said it's the best book of the 20th century written about religion. And so like there Lonely are Man of Faith. Look at these. Yeah. Lonely Man of Faith. Love it. And it's a really uh and he was a really serious influence uh on my family growing up. My first memory is like being at his bedside. He was my dad was his doctor. So uh I just have a memory of him like putting his hand on my forehead as like an old I only remember him as like an old man in a sick bed but like he was a really uh, important rabbi and there have been other rabbis who speak to that sort of like rabbi lord rabbi Jonathan Sachs who was chief rabbi of the UK wrote about Judaism in a way that Richard Rohr kind of writes about uh, Catholicism mm. and they have some disagree they would have some disagreements like Rohr talks about the idea of whether or not man and male and female is a binary or a combined like and I think Sachs might disagree with him but like Anyway, modern Orthodox rabbis have a way of communicating um, things about Jewish uh, values in a way that's palatable for the um, for like non uh, non Jewish people, and so I think that was like really fortunate sect of Judaism for me to be raised in. It, that whole time, I was like, so your father was this rabbi, uh, his, his cardiologist. Yeah, and I'm like, would you? Like, if I was a cardiologist, would you want me operating on Richard Rohr? Is that reverence good or is it debilitating? I have to think it's a bell curve. Like, I'm holding the most important rabbi's aorta right now. Or do you want a guy that's like, he's what? No, they go to church on Sunday or Saturday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's snipping up. Like, which is it? I, You know, it's actually my dad never operates on anyone. But, but, I mean, 
my dad sometimes says that he he said to me once, you know who gets the worst uh, medical care? Uh, and I said, uh, who? And he said, poor people. So you know who gets the second worst medical care? And I said, uh, who? And he said, uh, rich and famous people. Because there's a playbook for a reason. And uh, for rich and famous people, they deviate from the playbook. And so what my you, dad- like, um, oh, remember Ted Kennedy died of a stroke? Uh, maybe you don't remember that, but Ted Kennedy died of a stroke. But before, a couple years before that, he had a neck surgery that he probably didn't need to have. Like, and I think that for famous people, they James Garfield's a really good example, even though it's a long time ago. James Garfield is the president. He got shot. And if they sort of left him alone, he probably would have survived, but they just tried to do too much and they invented these new machines that made the thing worse. They brought Alexander Graham Bell to try to find the bullet with a metal detector, not realizing that the bed underneath James Garfield was made of metal so that what just wasn't working. Like mm. pe- like famous people yeah, and rich people, they deviate from the playbook and they kind of, um, they do extraneous stuff and, um, mm. and so they try to go down the middle. But uh, my dad, I think, took it really seriously, obviously. And my, my grandfather, the way it works, by the way, is for people who are like medical folks. My grandfather just passed away uh, two weeks ago, which is, or two Sorry. and a half weeks ago. Uh, yeah. And, and he, um, my dad obviously wasn't his doctor, but like this guy who was a really good friend of my dad's, he looked after my grandfather and my dad looked after his parents. And so they had like, oh, my wow. grandfather got great medical care, but like, um, Sorry. Brian. Sorry. Yeah, it was a really. It's okay, it was, your sadness is beautiful. You don't have to be sorry. He's a really great guy. This guy, um, yeah. and he loved. Uh, he loved comedy. And the only time he saw me perform one time only, uh, which was opening for Patton uh, Oswalt at the Wilbur. And uh, yeah, he had a really great sense of humor, and I showed him a lot of comedians. He loved you. He loved Gary. He loved Josh Gondelman. Uh, he loved Maria Bamford, which is so funny to me, but he would ask me to explain a lot of Maria's jokes, uh, <laughs> which was really, uh, which was really cool. Like, yes, and he also, cool. by the way, if he found something funny, he sometimes wouldn't wait for the end. He'd be like, that's funny. Let's play another one. Like he would, he would laugh and then want to move on. Like same with music. Wow. Like I played him Phoebe Bridgers. who's like, uh, wow. someone I know a little bit. And like halfway through a song, he's like, all right, next song. I love this. And I was like, don't you want to hear the rest of the song? But he was a World War II veteran. He was like, let's go, you know. TikTok, TikTok. That's really funny. What an interesting, you have to save that for a script or something. That's a very interesting character. But but for God anyway, like I was raised by these people. And I don't even know that I believe in certain things anymore. Like, like I don't keep Shabbos in a way that would make Elon Gold happy. But like, I, <laughs> you don't want to be burdened. Although, you know, what's funny, man. Elon seems like a really genuinely happy guy. Like, he is he a really genuinely happy, happy guy. Like the, the joke would be like, nothing's going to make Elon happy. No, no, he, he seems really happy. He seems, by the way, my favorite story about Elon Gold, if, again, if you need the liner notes, he's an Orthodox Jewish comedian who lives in LA. He's one of their like three good Orthodox Jewish comedians and he's one of them. Yeah. And by the way, I think all three of them have been on Crashing uh, yeah. in that amazing episode. But like, yeah. Elon, uh, and, and Elon has a bunch of kids and lives in a nice house in Westwood and is a great family man. But Elon is also the pushiest person that I know. And he, uh, occasionally, uh, he, 
He walked into Larry David's office on on his birthday, on Elon's birthday, and he said to Larry David, Larry, it's my birthday, and because of that, I've come here to tell you that um, I should be on Curb Your Enthusiasm. And he did it every year on his birthday for three years. And then the third year, Larry started laughing and is like, all right, you're going to be on the show. And so so Elon is on it. This like, I'm not season. saying Elon wasn't my first choice. He was, but I'm pretty sure he stayed on Jed about that. Like, he was like, when Jed said there's an episode, because I used to do a Purim show. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I would, I, I, don't, I don't think I told the story of Purim, but I, I did this set. Uh, and I was the one goy. I was the honorary goy. And then from that, I wrote that episode. And then I think Jed mentioned Elon, like, you should be in it. And then I don't think Elon let up about it. Like, it was going to happen. Like, you can't stay, you know. But in other people, maybe that goes away. Not with Elon. Elon no, Elon loves to. And also, by the way, yeah. he's, I don't want to say he's got no shame. It's just Elon ran into Mel Brooks in an airport lounge. And he's like, Mel, you know my friend Alex Edelman. And Mel's, of course, like knows my face a little bit, but Mel's Mel's producer is like, Oh yeah, we 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 love Alex. And he's like, Mel, you know Alex. And Mel's like, Yeah, yeah. And then that guy called me a couple of months later and he went, You need to tell Elon Gold to leave me alone. It's uh it's really Oh my God. And I wouldn't change him for the world. I once had a cab no. ride with Elon back to my apartment in Brooklyn. And by the end of it, I would have given him my apartment in Brooklyn. You know what I mean? Like, he's, I didn't own it, but I would have given him anything. Like, he's just very nice and you want to please him, but he can be a bit much is what we're saying. I love people. Although part of the thing Camille I love Brooks, about apparently. Com- there is a thing, though. Don't you think that, like, some of the things you love about comedians is that they are a bit much? Like, Wayne oh, Fetterman. Yeah. A bit like, much. Like, he, Gary Goldman and I, we were having lunch on the Upper West Side once. And please, we occasionally have like a guest lunchy. Please join us when it works. Yeah, it's I would love so to. fun. And like, when we stop recording, I'll tell you one thing that I just can't say on this, but like, I really yeah. want to tell. But so, like, we had Wayne Fetterman for lunch at a vegan restaurant. Gary's a vegan. And Wayne showed, uh, and Gary's like three minutes late. Wayne's infuriated. Wayne knows I tell the story and is totally fine with it. Like, Wayne is infuriated that uh, Gary's late. He's very upset because he wanted barbecue. And he tells the waitress, you know, I wanted barbecue. One of the reasons Gary's late is because he's bought us two, uh, he's bought us each a book from Barnes & Noble. And Wayne Fetterman wrote a book on Pistol Pete Maravich, the basketball player. So he's bought Wayne a nice basketball book, a book about John Wooden, the great coach. And halfway through the meal Wayne holds up the book and says you know Gary I don't I don't want this book and Gary's like delighted by this he goes what do you mean he goes I don't really have any interest in this book I don't want the book and Gary goes okay Wayne and Wayne goes do you have the receipt no yes and so Wayne (laughs) returns the book Wayne returns the book. He leaves the lunch and he goes to the Barnes and Noble. And then later on, I text him with Gary on the chain. I go, Wayne, what other book did you get? And he went, oh, I got a gift card. This is (laughs) like when Wayne was on Gratchy and I would talk to him, I started getting an appreciation for how weird he is. It's so... (laughs) I don't say weird is a bad thing, by the way, Wayne, if you hear this. I'm just like, I, I remember when he was like, I eat fast food uh, six, seven times a week. I was like, what? <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> and he and looks I great. Get a card I mean, yeah, but get your dad and split the screen and get your dad on the Zoom. We'll talk oh, a to Wayne. Oh, a thousand percent. But sorry, in terms of, I, I just, given that I've listened to it so much on the podcast, I, like, my relationship with God, sorry to go back to, to this. No, but that's like, what you're supposed to do. My relationship with God is, like, really a serious um ponderous one because i don't know that i believe in anything concretely and it changes and like i used to have a i used to talk on stage about how i can never get a tattoo because i don't even like the same god i liked five years ago but like i really find a really funny line a frustrating but like a big part of soloveitchik's revolutionary thought for modern orthodoxy was that it was okay to wrestle with whether or not you had a relationship with God or if you believed in God. That is the radical thought of an Orthodox rabbi with a mm. really sterling pedigree because obviously rabbis going all the way to the 20th century, just faith in God was assumed it was the whole thing. And Soloveitchik's thing was sort of about the I-thou relationship between um, between a man and his creator or a woman and her creator, whether or not they actually believed in something that it was okay to wrestle with that. And, um, and he wrote really like brilliant scarly stuff about it. And so like something that really appeals to me about traditional Judaism is that the wrestling with it is the thing like Judy, like it's a little bit too simplistic to be like, it's all about the journey in Judaism, but like the conversation, the argument the like it, in Hebrew, the word Israel means to wrestle. And until the country was established, the word Israel was used interchangeably with Jews. Like people of Israel were, you know, um, people of Israel or Jews sometimes are referred to collectively as Am Yisrael. And like the idea of Jews as wrestlers with this, with these ideas and, uh, and David struggle. Comes in and goes, Which is a funny thought. <laughs> Bunch of winded guys in in unitards. I mean, the bit writes itself. <laughs> it was. It was literally from Israel. Was also the name of Jacob, and he wrestled. Literally wrestles with an angel before he climbs the flaming ladder and stuff like that. But it's now seen and as a walks metaphor. away with. A, that's what we would say is you can wrestle with God, but you might walk away with a limp because remember he gets a limp. He does get a limp. I mean. Yeah. And so the idea of God in Judaism is tremendously fluid. And I think that you're attracted, like people like James Martin and Richard Rohr, I hope I'm not being offensive by not using their honorifics, but like by, by, uh, no. like, I think you're attracted to these guys who, who try to, the way that I am attracted to Jewish thinkers who try to square modern theology with, you know, or modern thought and modern values with traditional theology. And Judaism sort of lends itself to that and has lent itself to that, at least in my opinion, for a long time. And I made something religious in the pandemic. I made an online Passover Seder. Did, uh, have I, have I mentioned, I haven't mentioned this, but like they. A.O. Israel. <laughs> it's an AOL joke, Alex. I'll show myself out. <laughs> A.O. Israel. I got it right away. You did. I but, saw yes, it in your face. Yes. You got it right away. Uh, this guy. So the pandemic started. And it was right around Passover. And Benj Pasek, who's a friend of mine who's a, who writes musicals, he's part of this songwriting duo called Pasek and Paul. And they've done all the music for Dear Evan Hansen and The Greatest Showman and La La Land and a bunch of other stuff. And he called me and we were talking about how weird it was to be making, uh, uh, to be having a Passover, which is about 
liberation, celebrating liberation in a time of actual confinement because everyone's in their apartment. And so he made this like YouTube video, but Benj asked all these Broadway people and because no one was working, we just asked their agents. And like, we got like Bette Midler and Josh Groban and Rachel Brosnahan and um, uh, Dina Menzel and like basically like a ragtag bunch of like Jews and non-Jewish Passover enthusiasts. And like, we got these people I'm a together. Passover <laughs> yeah, I'm a Philo, I'm a Philo Passover or something like that. And we made this thing and Reza Aslan was part, we had people who weren't like Reza was there too and said some really beautiful stuff about the resonance of the Exodus narrative. And like, we made this thing, a YouTube video and we raised $3.7 million for COVID relief. And like, it was so enriching because like, I really leaned into my Judaism, but I had to have all these hard conversations about like, there are so many different kinds of Jews and we we're making something that was a little bit religious. And so like from a traditional Jewish background, I sort of had to like, I was the right, I was the head writer with heavy air quotes because everybody did everybody else's job because it was a YouTube video. But like we actually had a writer's room and argued for like a week before we started actually writing stuff. And like, it was hard to sometimes stand up for Jewish values that I don't necessarily believe in. Like we asked a rabbi to introduce the items on a Seder plate and he included like five items that don't go on traditional Seder plates to be more inclusive mm. or to be more like thoughtful, nothing identity politics inclusive, but just trying to think about like, and we cut all. And at some point I said, we're going to cut off these items. We're going to edit this video to make it look like he's just inter introducing the six, seven items that go on a traditional Seder plate. And it was a big conversation about how to best represent Jews in a, it was really tough, but ultimately a thing came out really nicely. And it seemed like nobody was, was, was mad at us at the we end. We cut horseradish like, for length. Yeah. A time cut. <laughs> Sorry. You know, look, um, we really wanted to include the orange, but you got bumped for Matt Damon. And uh, <laughs> we just... <laughs> We have Lamb Shank, Matt Damon, and the Roots are here. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> what are the items that aren't on a traditional Seder plate? I know that's a strange question. But no, um, he wanted to include like an empty roll of toilet paper to represent the like times that we're in, and he wanted, um, he wanted a like. Uh, a bit of dried pasta to represent like juice from Salonica, which is like a really difficult part. And then he's like, and there needs to be, and then there were like one or two things that were like, that were designed to be provocative because we asked a provocative rabbi to do it. And like, I was like, this is not, we're actually not going to be provocative until the end. And like, you know, there, there are things that I had to like think about, this is maybe this is the only time I've ever talked about it, maybe because um, this is a podcast that that maybe speaks to that. But like certain Jews from the I go to a synagogue now in L.A. called Ekar that has uh, that whose rabbi's name is Sharon Browse. But growing up, the idea of a female rabbi was entirely foreign to me because I grew up in an orthodox enclave. Mm -hmm. And so now I have a female rabbi and I wanted Jews to be able to sort of. I wanted to be effective as opposed to write. And so we had four rabbis scattered around this thing. It was sketches, songs. It's actually some of the sketches are really funny and some of the songs are really beautiful. We wrote these original songs with like Josh Groban singing it and written by the guy who did like La La Land. It was really phenomenal. But um, we had these four rabbis scattered around and I put 
them in descending order of traditional. If the top of it is traditional and the bottom is most secular, we had the modern Orthodox rabbi at the top and then a conservative rabbi and then Rabbi Sharon Browse and then uh, another... Yeah, and then Elon Gold. Elon, Gold. Elon was like, I did. I thought, ironically, I was like, Elon gets paid for this kind of thing. I can't ask him to do it. And then afterwards, he called me. He's like, I cannot believe you didn't put me in this YouTube video. I could have guessed that. I would have guessed that. Yeah. <laughs> I had his daughter, though, sing the backing. We got a chorus of kids to sing the backing vocals for Adina Menzel. when she did the it worse for Elon. You got it made it worse because yeah. his daughter, he was like, you asked Audrey to be in the Hanukkah, in the Pesach special, but you didn't ask me. The leather jacket. I see it. It's shiny. It's a shiny leather. It was so, but but it was a really tough it's but like it pete that's a really interesting conversation like is that right of me to do because i knew that if you lead with a female rabbi there are 10 15 percent of jews who in my opinion aren't correct but they'll be like right away be like oh this isn't you know but at the but we got like dozens of notes from orthodox people dozens i'm not exaggerating dozens people have come up to me after shows to tell me this in person to go you know i had always been i always had this bias about female rabbis and rabbi Bra- and this is something to do with rabbi browse who if you know anything if anyone knows anything about her, is a really special incredible rabbi she she defies a lot of the negative false stereotypes that certain Jews on the Orthodox side of the spectrum have about female rabbis. And so people, because they had been sort of, this is a thing I learned from comedy because they had been eased in by something that wasn't challenging. There was a lot of challenging stuff at the end of this special for traditional Jews who would have shut the echo chamber. This is what we've been talking about for two hours. It's right. But it was a really tough decision because I was like, should I even be worrying about these Jews? Who I, Like my rabbi is a female rabbi. Should I be worrying about these Jews? But I care about them. Even if I disagree with them, I care about them. So again, it's about being right and being effective. And like, that's a really tough thing when you're having inter or intra-denominational conversations in Judaism. And so like, I find myself in this really hopeless position personally, where like, I can't really talk with a lot of the people that I pray with. And I can't pray with a lot of the people that I talk to. And so I find myself a lot of times in these rooms where I am the most Jewish person in the room or the least Jewish person in the room. And they're very few, you know, it's a, that's a, it's no, sucks. no, we have that in common, man. I, I mean, I want to say that again, you have a lot of people you can talk to that you can't pray with and people you can pray with, but you can't talk to that really, I, I really, tough. I'm going to take that away uh, with me because Be, like, yeah. I'm fortunate that I have, I, I might say meditated, but I've sat in silence with Richard Rohr before. And I was like, and, and Rob Bell and other people like that. And I'm yeah. like, why do I have to like, <laughs> why is it so hard? I have to actually go to the guy, <laughs> you know, to find somebody that I can comfortably do that with. And, and I have a bit, maybe you'll appreciate, maybe you saw me do it at Supernova, but I go like, I believe in God, but like, I need to find a funnier way to say this, but I'm like, but but don't worry, like I, I I hate when people believe in God. Like like if someone and this is true, if you tell me you believe in God, I start eyeing the exits. I'm like, what is this? A murder suicide? You just told me you believe in God. Like, are you gonna? What's good? Something bad is about to happen. Because I just want to. I I can't find a way to talk about God without getting cheap applause 
from what I might be misjudging, I, I most likely am, but I don't want that cheap, like, it's got to come from somebody, so he's right. And like 99.999 repeating percent of humanity is believed in some sort of God. It's not special. I'm trying to have that like next level sure. conversation. It's really hard to do. And how do you do that while excluding basically this large group that wants to come with you? But also, I'd rather talk to the atheists, I guess, is a strange thing. But, but I'd rather talk to people like you. I but you're so few. But that is like, so Stephen Fry, who's who I mentioned before, I worked, he, he was on the sitcom that I was working on. And we're like friendly from, from that and from other stuff. And I've had these big arguments. Stephen is also, besides being one of the UK's most prominent LGBTQ people, is, um, and LGBTQIA, because for a while he was a very prominent asexual. Um, but he's also one of the world's most prominent atheists. And he's regularly, and he's was really best, best, best friends with Christopher Hitchens, and talk, and is close with Dawkins, and and speaks really eloquently about atheism. And we uh, disagree, and we've had big arguments. Like, like he said to me once, he's like, "I can't abide the shame. I can't abide the guilt that's instilled by you know." Really, and my argument, by the way, is that that in its most ideal form. Judaism doesn't prescribe guilt. It diagnoses why we why we experience guilt. Like not to get too Torah-y, but when in Hebrew the word to have uh, sex with someone is the same for the word to know them, right? So like when someone says you knew them in the biblical sense, you're like yeah. it's because it's the same word, right? Like to know someone and to have sex with someone is the same thing. And so I've always taken from that like that there is sometimes a guilt when we do an intimate thing with someone that we don't actually feel a real intimacy with. There is an engendered guilt in that. There is an engendered guilt when we do something that is very knowing with someone that we don't actually know in, or we don't feel like we know. And like, because of that, I think that's why the the Torah is saying, hey, you have this, uh, you feel this feeling of guilt because you've done something that isn't like, and again, that's a, that's a personal interpretation. That's one way of reading the text that could be wrong, but like it is like that is a thing that is hard for I'm, I find it really hard to have conversations with people who aren't um, who don't have a seed of doubt. Like you say, like God is a really like I have what keeps what I have most in common with a with with a person isn't that I have a belief or non-belief. It's that I have doubt and that I'm constantly vacillating between two things and that like I'm open to change. And that's another thing. Like that's a thing that Fry invokes in that opening statement of that debate. He goes, I might be wrong about political correctness. And he's and he quotes uh, George Bernard Shaw, who says that, um, you know, the best are full of doubt while the worst are full of passionate intensity, right? Like they know that they're, that they're right. This is, I feel so pretentious. This is the last time I apologize, but I do feel like a little pretentious talking about this stuff, but like, it really is, I love it. You know, it's this the, whole, this whole time I've been like, you've impressed me most. Your special is great, but you've impressed me most with your mind and how many wonderful things that I haven't heard you knew. And I, I'm really enjoying this, so please don't feel bad. Well, I mean, I know how you feel about God, but have you had people read? Not, I know how you feel about God. I've heard you talk eloquently and I candidly. Believe you do. I would believe you do. 
and but like have you do you do people come up to you after shows do people write you going hey i have this similar experience where they're like i'm sure that pe- people must right like people oh, yeah. and has that changed your has that changed your relationship with it at all i i just think it's a shame sometimes i fantasize about writing a book it would just be such a snooze talk about being effective right like like i sometimes just want to say like here's a new glossary of terms right mm-hmm. here's what we mean by heaven here's what we mean by hell here's what we mean by sin here's what we mean by grace here's what we mean by all these different like just redefine the language to rescue this faith for earnest people that kind of like secretly miss it um sure but i i find it's more effective to just uh joke around in a podcast where I also talk about diarrhea and stuff and, like, <laughs> and then occasionally do a stand-up bit about the best of the best, like the best point that I've made in five years or 10 years of podcasting. I'll turn that into a bit. And those are, I'm not surprised. Those are always the bits that um, survive the best. Like if you sure. can do a bit about like what is going on here, all the people that thought they were alone, realize it's what Terrence McKenna says. He says, find the others. There's so many. Not only are there so many uh, weird people that grew up evangelical and their wives left them, like literally that. There's so many Orthodox people and their father knew the rabbi that, you know, like have exactly your experience. So that's a beautiful thing. But do you know what I don't see represented on TV is the experience of, and this is why crashing was refreshing for me, even though it wasn't totally about this. Um, for me, the experience of being religious isn't unorthodox. It's not like it's time to throw it away so you can learn piano in Germany. Like it's not, it's, it's not that like, it's also not the experience of being trapped in a cult. Although there are elements of both of those things in any religious group, right? There is a, there is a, um, something that shares a characteristic with a cult and there is a desire of repression and a need for independence. For me, the, experience of being religious is um and by the way unorthodox that is someone's experience of being religious and like there are sects of judaism of which i have relatives who i actually do think as regressive sexist oppressive and and all that stuff but my experience of religion is that i'm not is that like if i could throw it away it being uh the religious part and fully embrace the modern world, that would be great. And if I could throw the modern world away and embrace religious life, like traditional Orthodox Judaism, that would be great too. But my actual lived experience, and I very rarely see this on TV, except it's alluded to in Crashing, obviously, is that you walk the tightrope between two things. You walk the tightrope between the thing that is the filter through which you see the world, this religious upbringing that you have, this thing that has valence, the stuff that you believe, and the modern world that has, you know, fascination for you and things that fulfill you in ways that your traditional upbringing can't. And so, like, it is a really tough, you know, it is a really tough thing for me to find the balance between those two. Well, this is if a goat falls in a hole on the, on the Sabbath. That's the yes. whole... Yes. The whole thing. And if you ask Jesus, uh, if you can p- pick weed on the Sabbath, one of the things I like about Jesus is he's like, yeah, they're hungry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my, my homeboys were hungry. So <laughs> Jesus is so great. Have you he heard totally. me say my favorite 
I learned this in Israel. I studied in Israel for six months and we were like, I didn't know. Oh yes. You've mentioned this. You mentioned this on the podcast, man. You mentioned it with Rob. Uh... Rob Bell. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds right. In the old city in, in uh, right by Jaffa gate. It, oh. There I was. It was awesome. And it was beautiful. And I loved it. And uh, when you're surrounded by so much fervent Judaism, it's really, that's where the, your feet get real close to the fire. And you're like, wait, we're saying all these guys are going to hell. Like, like all yeah. of my friends that I was making in the markets and in the shops and all these beautiful, I'm not just saying that to pander. I am no, saying no. partially to pander, but not no, but I believe, I believe beautiful, you. great relationships. And I'm like, we don't like these guys. And all I'd ever learned up to that point was only Christians get the real thing and, and God hates everybody else. And my teacher, uh, what was his name? His name was Mark. I don't remember his last name. He said, anytime a Jew asks Jesus what to do in the New Testament, this is a fun little fun fact for you. Anytime he, I think, anytime he asks a Jew, if a Jewish person asks Jesus what he should do to enter the kingdom of heaven or whatever, mm-hmm. Jesus always says, be a good Jew. He all, that's always his answer. And when I, when I took that, I was like, can't we just relax? Nobody had ever told me anything even close sure. to that. By that point, it had just turned into us versus them in, out, and they're all going to burn and we're all fine, which is one of the most fucked up ways to live your life ever. It's, it's hard for me too, because I have a friend who's Mormon and he's like, you know, just so you know, when you die, is it okay? I cannot believe, this is true. <laughs> he's two years younger than me. And by the way, I was like, a lot of stuff can happen. It's you could Bo have before me. It's Bo Burnham. It's Mormon. It's Mormon Bo. It's Mo Burnham. It's the Mormon Bo. And he's, uh, he's. Mo Burnham. Mo Burnham. <laughs> it's the special, but the whole special is white woman's Instagram. That's the only thing he knows. Oh but like, <laughs> he is, by the way, possibly my favorite comedian. Like he's so ambitious. Okay. He's so, and, and I have issues sometimes with his stuff and that's how I know I love it because I don't have issues with anything I don't give a shit about but like I have issues tremendous anyway but like this Mormon guy's like when you die is it okay if I you know like if I have you you can baptize someone in Mormonism after they're dead he's like I can restore you to the kingdom of heaven and I went first I was offended and then I went go crazy you know like like what do you (laughs) what is this um Pascal, yeah, Pascal's wager. I was like Vidal. I was like Gore Vidal's wager. Yeah, Gore Vidal's wager. Pascal's wager. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Why it's not? A, it's real. I was like, go crazy. And also, like, I have. By the way, Israel is so interesting to me because yeah, I lived there for a while as a young person, and I would define myself as like a you know like a liberal. When it comes to Israel, I I describe myself as sort of like an American liberal. Like I want the country to embody the values that I think Jewish, you know, things embody. And I'm dis- and I think, and I'm really upset when it doesn't, but Israel is interesting for me because the only place in the world, man, I don't think I've ever said this publicly, but it's the only place in the world where I truly don't feel, um, other is Ooh. where I feel most myself and like, there is a saying, someone, Satra said that Jews build temples in time, not in space. And uh, like, but like, so for me, Judaism has always been pretty decentered from an actual place. But like on Friday night in the old city, when you walk in through the Jaffa gate and you go down through the market towards the Western wall and people are quiet, but not like reverently quiet. It's just like 
there's a there's like a some there's a quiet that's not solemn and you get towards you get towards the wall and people are singing and, and praying and there's that weird light that hits off the Jerusalem stone just so I feel very like it's I said to my I said to my friend when I was there I said this is the only place I feel unquestioningly religious like this is the only place where I can actually cuz like sabbath is really important for me sabbath is like friday night to Saturday night, those are really important times for me because my girlfriend will, my girlfriend's the one who pointed out, she pointed out that I just get happier on Friday nights. Like if I'm stressed about something, I'm very anxious, but like on Friday night, everything falls away. And it's because I think of myself like, you know, sometimes I'm in Jerusalem and this is nothing to do with politics and nothing to do with how I, whether or not I think Israel as a state should exist or something like that. But I truly believe there's something special about being able to to worship in that place in in that time like uh, my spectral image is as a Jew walking to temple like I feel really connected I have this I have this recurring um, daydream where there's this old Jew and he and his wife work in a market in the Ukraine and they sell ribbons from a cart and they work like a dog all week and Friday night the market starts to shut down and this guy and his wife uh, walk home and uh, they get to their house and they light a fire and they clean their children and they sit down at this Friday night table and they light the candles and they bless the they bless the challah after doing kiddush on the wine. So I can't believe this, but like and in that moment. I like like sit if whenever on Friday night whenever I light candles or you know drink wine or bless challah, no matter how I feel about God, whether or not I think it's important at all for any religious thing, I feel very much located in that continuum of Jews, and my grandfather is in that continuum, and my my relatives that I never met, uh, and my father and Jews who are rich and poor and educated and not and healthy and sick and English or American or British or who were alive now or when Jesus was alive or 2000 years before that or slaves in Egypt or whatever that was like, I feel very much connected to that. And so like, I, I think I spend a lot of my time, um, like we talked about how important it is for like, like, I think I, everything I am, can be dialed back to that moment. My desire for conversation, my desire for community, my desire for to my desire for being in dialogue with my values and my background. And um, I, I think it all stems from this like desire for Shabbos at the Western Wall. Like it's a very I, I, I don't know that I I'm I'm I don't know that I'm communicating this that brilliantly, but I think it's uh, you know I think it's kind of central to uh to me and so like my memories of israel are really really uh you know important and i think my next solo show might be about the israeli palestinian conflict so it's going to be a really uh leaden thing but uh so diarrhea like when we talk about (laughs) sorry i i don't love earnestness that much pete i can't you know it's great wow beautiful the whole time i was like oh that's how you like find yourself it's like the vibration a dolphin (laughs) sends out to bounce off of something to tell it where it is that's that was what you just described all my earnestness same thing with uh raise the praise and my promise ring 
and true love waits. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, those are dumb, corny Christian things, you know, the rich culture of youth group. (laughs) 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 No, what I'm, what I'm actually articulating in that joke is that those strong, strong cultural identities I'll always just envy them. I had so few. Luckily, my mom is a first-generation Lithuanian, so we got all these weird Catholic Lithuanian sort of traditions. And now that I'm older, I'm like, fuck, uh, we don't have any of that stuff. We actually, Val and I have talked many times, and we might do it when Lila's older, about doing, or at least going to a Shabbat, because we're like, we have nothing. We have no, not, not us. We have some reverence, and we have some tradition, and we have some liturgy and all that stuff in our lives. But like, can always use more. So that was beautiful. You're always well. I mean, like I love having, you know, I've had Shabbos in the weirdest places because of comedy, like in Melbourne and in Sweden and like Amsterdam. Like the dating game in 1957. Where's the weirdest place you've had Shabbos? <laughs> that would be in the butt, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> that would be in the butt, Bob. <laughs> you know that old clip? Yes. Where's the yes. weirdest place you've had sex? That would be in the butt, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. Uh, My parents' bedroom. Yeah. Oh, my God. No. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, sorry. Loved it, needed it. I I, I have to run because Val has something at three and that's our our two hours. But I'm I'm really enjoying this. I I don't want you to be robbed of your last question. What were you going to say? I was just going to I was just going to say that this is like a delight for me. And also, I'm sorry if I'm a little bit, uh, you know, I haven't done a podcast in a while. And wonderful. uh, and I also, um, I, I really, uh, I said to our mutual, uh, friend and associate Dave, I said, um, you know, I cannot, I had two minutes in a room with, uh, PJ while we're both waiting to go on a supernova and I couldn't have been, I said, and it just made me really want to hang out with him a lot more. With and me? He, yeah. I was like, it was so, uh, so this is really, um, this is so nice for yeah, me. It's wonderful. No, I always love seeing you. The time you came by Largo and stuff, it's always pleasant. Oh, Mike just texted me other areas, which is so funny. And what I'm going to he... string it into a compliment. Speed, speed round, speed round. Was admittedly annoying when starting out. And I want to yeah. compliment you. This is your comedy bar mitzvah. Like, no, it already happened. But like, you became a man. Like, I watched you. There was a time when I would see you and my first thought would be like, oh, boy. And and then Dave actually had to say like, no, you got to see a bow. And he's absolutely right. You've matured. Uh, I think we have to have another bris. Is that what we do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's gonna be it's gonna be painful at the Western Wall, which is gonna no, be so we're expensive. Trim off yeah. Just a little bit of the microphone. That's what we do because it's comedy. <laughs> but you really have matured into this delightful man, and I'm I'm so happy for every success because you Thank- deserve it because you were always funny. And you actually reminded me, I was thinking of when I was young, I was way too much, way too much. So anything that I saw in you was a reflection of what I used to have in me. That's so nice. And also, uh, I really do want to, like, in terms of maturation, this is clumsy but real. I really want people, especially comedy fans, to see my uh, show because the reason I like it so much more than anything else I've ever done is because I think my director says it signals your transition from a little brother of stand-up comedy into a big brother of stand-up comedy. Uh-huh. 
which is a bit like a bar mitzvah in terms of like, and, and to have it presented by someone like Mike, who I can't say enough about at a place like Cherry Lane, I feel like, uh, although weirdly, I still never auditioned at the cellar. I'm like, it still holds a weirdly like intimidating place in my, uh, in my mind. You said you love people that take chances (laughs) earlier. And I wanted to tell you, but I didn't want to interrupt that I was scared of the cellar so long. I mean, like I used to bark on the corner across the street from it for another club. And then I watched Man on Wire. Have you seen Man on The Philip Petit thing? Yeah. Yeah. So he's on the tightrope. And you mentioned the tightrope also earlier, uh, later after that. But I watched it and I was so inspired that that guy did something that scared him. But that night I went to the cellar and auditioned and I have all of these like, some of the happiest photos of me, me and Ted Alexandro, me and Jed, me and all the people that were there, Ryan, uh, Ryan, I'm forgetting Ryan's last name. Hamilton. There, Hamilton. It wasn't Ryan Hamilton though. It was Ryan, Ryan, Ryan Reese, Reese. Oh, Reese. That's right. Ryan Reese. Is it Ryan? Am I fucking? It's Ryan Reese. He used to yeah. pull up outside my apartment before I was a professional comic and be like, we're going to Syracuse, get in. And like, I would open for him. He'd give me like a hundred yeah, bucks for like course. a day of work. At a yeah, no, that's about guy. right. That's the first 10 years. Um, not that it yeah. needs to be. No, no, not no. That it needs yeah. to be. I don't want to propagate. Uh, yeah, that's the stuff. Um, yeah. Anyway, congratulations. I'm even going to say Mazel Tov. Thank you. Yeah. You can say Mazel Tov, but I really appreciate it. And, um, but shouldn't I say Mazel Tov? Shouldn't I say you should when you said there was an episode a couple of months where you're like, uh, you use, you use schmeckle as a you use schme- you're like, I don't know if Yiddish schmeckle is a Yiddish word. And I was like, it is. But um, it's it means penis. Uh, you were like you're you used it to mean a little bit, but it means oh penis. You're like a schmeckle. Of, I was like, what is 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 schmeckle a thing? Sh- um. Maybe my Yiddish isn't perfect, but like my my uh, my I uncle thought, used to go uh, used to go yes. grab your, your you, like before if you want to say watch out, he'd be like grab your schmeckles or go in it. Like it's a really insane. Oh my God. <laughs> I seem to remember on the on the Brian Cranston episode of Seinfeld where he converts to Judaism for the jokes, he asked for a speckle of fluoride. Maybe he's getting it wrong. I know schmuck is schmuck is the tip of the penis. Goldman says. One. Goldman says that Jews have uh, has have, have as many words for loser as Eskimos have for snow. <laughs> Brilliant. He's like, that's our Brilliant. culture. He's like, there's shlomil, there's shlomazel, there's schmuck, there's there's putts. Wow. There's it's true. It's so true. That is brilliant. But, well, last question. Can you remember a time in your life that you laughed really, 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 really hard? And what happened? Oh uh my god, yeah. The time I laughed, really, a time I laughed, there, God, there are, uh, there are a lot, but, um, what's the, oh, the first time I heard the Who Jackie story in a writer's room? <laughs> yes. Tell the Who Jackie story. All right. I, I want the, to hear you tell it. The Who Jackie story is, um, and I'm actually, I'm going to be some value added in case you've heard this already. There's some Ooh. behind the scenes dirt. Really? That um This is a classic. Everyone needs to know the Who Jackie story. So, first of all, writers room stories are great. They're my two favorites. One is way quicker than the Who Jackie story, but this they this old writer got hired on a multicam and he came in and he had a box of index cards. And do you know this one, Pete? 
Anytime they needed a joke, they did just pull it out. And anytime he needed a joke, he would rifle through his box of index cards to try to find a joke. And he was and the first day. They're like, what is that, Mark? And he's like, these are my jokes. And they're like, what do you mean? Those are your jokes? And he's like, yeah, those are my jokes. And so one day he opens the box. They're in, they're trying to, they're thinking, thinking, thinking. He opens the box and everyone's eyes go to him and he's rifling through and he pulls out an index card and someone goes, Mark, what do you got? And he just went, Can the floor be wet? <laughs> I'm dying. He was going to pitch. He's like, well, the floor is wet. Someone can slip. And then, you know, we'd have a joke about somebody slip. Like, it was just. Can the floor be wet? Can the floor be wet? But the who jazz. That, that reminds me of another one. There was somebody who was writing for Mr. Cooper. What was that called? Good sure, morning, yeah. Hanging with Mr. Cooper. Hanging with Mr. Cooper. And. All of these stories, by the way, usually start with like it was someone who wasn't supposed to have the job. It was a friend of the star. It's always that. Which I believe yeah. who Jackie is a friend of the star. Yes. Um, this is also like a friend of the star, like <laughs> like just clearly some stand-up comedian calling in a favor for someone who's, you know, really unstable. And now they're in the writer's room. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, Cooper, come home. So Cooper, Cooper, come home, house burned down. <laughs> springboard <laughs> meaning you figure it out like he comes home and his house is burned down springboard <laughs> it's just whenever we were in a writer's room and we me and um all of my I, I i'm thinking about specific people it was amazing would be sitting there we go Cooper, come home house burned down springboard it was one of my favorite things in the world <laughs> I muted myself because I was like, I'm going to interrupt. But if I, it's so fun. Tell I, me. The Who Jackie story. Who Jackie story. It was Laura Gooten, uh, Goody. Laura Gooten was the one who always would say, Cooper, come home. Um, the, 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 the Who Jackie um, story. Um, I heard from first from Bob Uecker because uh, before I w- was a comedian, I had a career that that <laughs> I worked sorry. in. I worked in baseball for the Red Sox. Uh, I wrote the kids' newsletter, so that was my first job. I was oh, there wow. from '03 to '07. It was the best, and then I moved to the Dodgers and had a couple bad years there, and then I had one awful year at the Brewers. But I heard this from Uecker first, and then slowly people have filled it in. But um, the last season of Roseanne, they were. Um, they had just hired everyone. They had they hadn't fired a bunch of people, and Roseanne was hiring all of her friends. And she hired a guy who shall remain nameless. And he actually his name's Dave, his, name. his, his name's David Terry, and he uh, and he was a and and he was a comic who was apparently really funny, but uh, not a writer. And also apparently he was depending on who you believe he was Roseanne's drug dealer, <laughs> and and. Yeah. <laughs> and so she hired him and he's and of course, there were so many writers they split them into an a room and a b room and uh rich scheidner who wrote who who's another comic who you may know pete he yeah. uh he was in the room but anyway they have a big morning and they have a big meeting in the morning every morning and then they split off into rooms and david tyree is on the show for months and doesn't pitch a single joke nothing and then, also, and this, I think it, it bears mentioning that like Roseanne is a huge show. Huge. It's huge. the biggest. Everyone knows it's a hit. It's a huge hit. All right. 
It's a huge hit. Lori Metcalf's won a million Emmys for playing uh, for playing uh, Roseanne's sister, Jackie, and uh, <laughs> and so and so she's an award winning. She's like Frances. Uh, uh, what's her name? McDormand. She's yeah, Frances McDormand. She's, she's Al- like that good. It was. Yes. It's one of those things. You know how like Allison Janney won Emmys for The West Wing, and then for Mom, and then Julia Louis Dreyfus won so many for Veep. She's like, stop voting for me. Like yeah. that's what this was. Lori McCaffrey had won like three Emmys in four years, and yeah. like um, David Terry goes, "I got a pitch," and the showrunner goes, "David, you you have a pitch," and he goes, "Yeah, okay." Husband comes home. Roseanne's, Roseanne's in the sink, washing a big old ass. And the whole writer's room goes very quiet because, among other things, Roseanne's husband, Tom Arnold, is a writer. And people are like, and David Tyree sees that his pitch hasn't quite landed. And he goes, uh, but it's not Roseanne. It's her twin sister. And the showrunner, looking for a tactful way to do this, goes, David Great pitch, but, um, you know, Roseanne actually already has a sister, uh, Jackie, right? And David Tyree, who's been writing on the show for several months, just goes, who Jackie? <laughs> who Jackie? It's never who's Jackie. It's always it's, it's who, Jackie? who Jackie. Well, who they Jackie? did it on 30 Rock. They would reference those old lore stories. Someone would go, who Jackie? All it's the time. Who, it's who Jackie. They There's a character called Who Jackie on the show. There is? Yes. She's a dry cleaner, which is a little problem, maybe a little problematic, but yes. like she she dies. And then depending on who you believe, Tyree sees that this ha- he goes, Who Jackie? And they're like, Who Jackie? She's the fu- she's the star of the show. She's the critical star of the show. And he goes, Okay, Jackie die. And everyone's like, Jackie die? He goes, Jackie die. Jackie an angel. She's still on the show. She die. She's an angel. She flies around the room, make everybody happy. And so uh, in the I show- have heard that. She fly around the room, make everybody happy. <laughs> yes. And so in Jackie 30 Rock. Die. She an angel. Fly around the room, make everybody happy. That's the <laughs> in, same story? That's who Jackie? In 30 Rock, um, Tracy Jordan, Tracy Morgan's giving a eulogy for who Jackie after she dies. And he goes, Jackie an angel now she flies around the room makes everybody happy and like it's so perfectly I remember I saw it I was like oh, Tina Fey I, knows the who Jackie story they also I, they say that's worse than the, he was louder than the time Lutz Belvedere <laughs> sat down and Belvedere himself which is the story that Mr. Belvedere was going to a table read and sat down he was a big man and he sat down too fast and his nuts were underneath his leg and he sat on his own nuts, which is now known as a Belvedere, but they don't even explain it. They don't even care. And, and they canceled the table read. Yeah. I mean, the table read was over. <laughs> By the way, who was Mr. Belvedere? Who? Who played Mr. Belvedere? I don't know. Um, it was, I thought it, was a, I thought it was a documentary. I th- <laughs> I thought that was Mr. Belvedere. I think Mr. Belvedere, who actually was, um, no, 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 Euchre, Bob Euchre, who told me the Who Jackie story, was played George Owens on Mr. Belvedere. So oh I can't believe he, it's, it's all full circle, the continuum. It's basically just like the story about me experiencing Shabbos, like my ancestor in the Ukraine. This is all Bob Euchre sitting on his own nuts or something like that. 
This is so good. I didn't know. He said, who Jackie? And then the story kept going. And then he said, will she die? But she's still on the show. She's an angel. Oh, it's really. She flies around the room and makes everybody happy. But people have, you have recollections of the first time you hear a joke. Like my favorite jokes that I just laugh so hard at. Like one of my best friends, this guy, Matty Healy. And then I swear I'll let everyone go. But like this, Matty Healy is in this band called the 1975. And he, the musicians have this whole group of jokes that they tell each other that in some, uh-huh. like, and so he told me a joke about, um, he went, this guy bursts onto a plane holding a gun and he goes, who's a Jew? And this old man in the back stands up and goes, you know, that's a very interesting question. <laughs> oh my God. It's so good. It's so good. That is really funny and it's back to your passover plate like who is a jew like what is a jew who is a jew that's a very interesting question what's a jew well have you heard my favorite one i've told it so many times go ramdas used to tell this joke everybody's heard this that listens to the podcast regularly but here it is again very quickly uh a jewish man is walking to temple it's saturday night and a cop is making small talk and he says uh hey where are you going uh, he says, good evening. He says, oh, good evening. Where are you off to? And he goes, I don't know. He goes, what do you mean you don't know? You're going to temple. It's Saturday. You're going to temple. He goes, I don't know. And he goes, stop fucking with me. You're going to temple. You're dressed you're in your uh, temple clothes. You're a Jewish man. You're walking in the direction of the temple. Where are you going? He goes, I don't know. Cop arrests him, throws him in jail. The re- and the Jewish man goes, see? <laughs> it's my favorite. It's my favorite. He didn't. He didn't know where he was going. Uh, Only God knows where you're going. The existential ones are. I told Gervais a joke, and he retold it to Seinfeld on comedians and cars getting coffee. And then no. Seinfeld's like, "Where'd you hear that joke?" And Gervais is like, "I don't remember." And I was like, "You do," but it was it was. Jerry the, said, "Where did you hear that joke?" And he says, "I don't remember." Yeah, maybe What's that's a joke? paraphrase. It's the best joke. It's the best joke I've ever heard. Guy dies, goes to heaven. Interesting question. Best joke. Best joke. Oh, wait, this is a big part of the episode. Guy dies, goes to heaven, and he meets God. And I read this joke in an academic paper from the 70s. This guy uh, in college. Guy meets God, and God's like, and he he, he recognizes him up there. He's like, God? And God's like, hey, Mike. And he's like, yeah, oh my goodness. I'm just such an admirer of your work. And he's like, oh, thanks. Always nice to meet someone who appreciates it. He's like, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, hey, God. And God's like, what's up? He goes, do you want to, you want to hear a joke? And God's like, yeah, no, I love jokes. And the guy tells God a Holocaust joke and God goes, you know, I have to tell you, um, I don't find that joke funny at all. And the guy goes, well, I guess you had to be there, huh? <laughs> oh my God. It's a novel, as Seinfeld says. That joke is, there's, it's the best, the best joke. It's a very thick novel. It's a very, it's the whole thing. It's the ball. You know, that's game. a very interesting question, is what I say about that. It's a very interesting question. But Gervais is actually so, thick. so interesting to have, um, open for so many great comics but yeah okay um all right look i i could do this all day i'm genuinely like there i've there's so many more things i want to but thank oh, you for having okay. me okay i'm glad we got to do this one maybe we'll do it again and we'll cover all the other please things. uh thank you alex the show is called just for us mm-hmm. it's at the cherry lane theater 
starting now. So if you're listening to this and you're in New York City, uh, it's out this weekend. So go see it. Please. Keep it crispy. Yeah. Oh. Keep it, I was just like, am I going to make it? And, and keep it crispy. Very nice. Very Thank nice. you. I'm so crispy. My ice game make you haters want to